Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 52 for October. See, I already messed it up. 2015. Uh, See, for the listeners, Mike and I just had this five-minute conversation about which episode this was and what month it was for, and we had it all figured out, and then I choked. So this is, in fact, uh, episode 52 for October 2015. Uh, Thank you all for joining us. My name is Quinn. I'm your co-host, uh let's say co-host A and co-host B is Mike McGinnis. <laughs> How you doing, Mike? I'm here, Quinn. How are you? I <laughs> could just hear. Well, all right. That's enough sometimes. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's off to a rough start when we can't even remember what month this is. So. <sighs> yeah, it's going to be that kind of show, folks. Uh, so I sure hope not because so uh, buckle up. some interesting stuff to talk about. We do, actually. So uh, we can kind of give people a, a taste of, of what's to come here. So Mike and I have talked uh, for a while now about doing a dedicated Geos episode. And uh, so this this is that episode. Uh, we've got a really awesome Geos-themed interview coming up. And uh, we're going to talk about Geos in uh, some more detail. We'll still have uh, you know some news and some uh, usual stuff. But uh, Geos uh, is awesome and deserves its own uh, show. So this is going to be that. So have you seen and or read The Martian I have read it. I loved it, and I'm planning to see it today. In fact, uh, it's it's a it's a fun movie. I saw it last weekend. Although um, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show or not. Uh, my sister is a, is an executive at um, at the United Launch Alliance (ULA). They're a competitor for SpaceX, and she's you know. She is a rocket scientist, so when you make rocket science jokes that she's talking about, she, she's actually, I am a rocket scientist. So, <laughs> um, But when you go see a movie like this with her, you're going to get a lot of commentary. And, and so I, <laughs> I'd advise leaving your scientist friends at home for this. Uh, that must have been going, to, that, I was like going to see Twister with a meteorologist. Yes, exactly. The whole time, they're like, but that's not how that works. <laughs> right, yep. Um so I'll uh, I'll spare you guys all the the commentary and stuff that we had going back and forth during the movie. But there was a Zork two and a Leather Goddesses of Phobos reference uh, in in the movie. It's it's pretty brief, I guess. One of the uh, astronauts that that goes up with uh, Matt Damon uh, is a sort of a retro type person and collects all the stuff. And she had copies of those games on her computer. Now they they show a brief screenshot or a brief there's a brief shot of him looking at her laptop and you see the uh ibm leather goddesses uh logo on the screen although it's it's cropped in such a way that you can see the 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 title of the game but you don't see the scantily clad women directly below it with standing next to the gas pump huh wow good catch mike that's fantastic yeah zork reference like it's sort of sort of plausible but leather goddess is a phobos that's a more obscure game for non you know hardcore infocom fans so that's pretty pretty awesome yeah that one came out uh, much later on in the uh, infocom run and i'm sure it uh didn't didn't probably sell as well because i think <laughs> at that point i don't know if they were activision property at that point but i know they weren't the company they once were 
Yeah, I have fond memories of uh, of Elgop, as they say. Uh, that was the one that came with these, uh, the scratch and sniff card. And, uh, <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, and they were all like awful smells. And uh, yeah, they had an awesome advertisement that they ran of this guy sniffing them and yeah, making a terrible face because they were awful. Uh, but, ah, feelies. Uh, yeah, the feelies, the golden age of feelies. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Well, let's uh, let's move on here a bit. Um, We've gotten a lot of feedback about the length of the show, actually, and uh, you know, it's uh, right now it's just about a, a, an even split between people who say they like the longer shows. Uh, as you know, longtime listeners know, we've been trending closer to two into the two to three hour range uh, lately, and uh, we've had but we've had a lot of feedback saying people want a shorter show. So uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it's a tough call because we want to make the show we want to make, but uh, we also want to make something that people want to listen to. So we're gonna try splitting the difference a little bit. We're gonna try to tighten things up a little bit. Uh, we may alternate some of our segments uh, on alternate months, um, and uh, maybe uh, try to focus uh, focus our content a little bit tighter on uh, strictly Apple II stuff. So hopefully that will work for people. We'll see how this goes. Yeah, I'm looking uh, forward to the to changing up the um, the format a little bit. You know, uh, hopefully we will. It's it's not that this is a bad thing, but it's become this. You know, um, the news section especially has become sort of a, a, a roll call of Apple II mentions on the interwebs, and uh, I think that that's sort of cutting into maybe some some better deeper discussion that we could have. Like if we focused on a fewer number of items we could have some good discussion rather than just having to read you know uh, this this check out this article check out this this is for sale um you know because that's sort of more for i think the news sites like a2 central and and call apple where they can you know uh, post a title and a short blurb and then move on to the next one whereas i i kind of like having these discussions especially you know we we you're smart, I'm sort of smart, and we have uh, a lot of smart Apple II people on the show, and so it's great when we can take time and really talk about some of these items, which lately I felt like we can't do because we're just so crammed for time and we got to like, you know, even even if we're pushing it, it's going to be three hours and come on, let's just get through this. And, and I think that leads to burnout and less, less interest. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to try a few things. And of course, you can send us feedback and let us know how we're doing. I think, uh, yeah, I think the value that we can bring to the uh, the community is the more in-depth conversation about fewer things. So that's, uh, that's what we're right. going to uh, try to refocus ourselves on. Uh, and speaking of bringing value to the community, uh, you can bring value to our community uh, by supporting us on uh, Patreon. Uh, we've been talking about this in the last couple of months. We've set up a Patreon for the show because... Uh, you know, as our readership grows, our hosting costs go up, and uh, they're actually quite substantial. So if uh, you wanted to pitch in a couple of bucks uh, to help us out, that would really be appreciated. Uh, you can visit us on uh, patreon.com slash openapple, and we'll have a link to that, of course, in the show notes. And uh, we got some email uh, about the recent Patreon security breach. Um, they had some uh, data stolen from their servers, and so I thought we would just quickly talk about that. Uh, the nature of the breach was actually such that what they what they actually got was uh, our data, not yours. <laughs> so people who have Patreon accounts um, set up, uh, that data is actually what was stolen, not the patrons' data. And, uh, you know, none of your uh, financial information or anything like that is actually stored on Patreon servers. So none of that was taken. 
And uh, everything that was taken is all 2048-bit RSA encrypted. So uh, nobody short of, of the NSA is, is going to be cracking that open anyway. So rest assured, uh, your data with Patreon is safe. And uh, we hope that you'll support us. Uh, <laughs> Patreon, honestly, it's, an, it's a fantastic service. Uh, there's nobody doing doing this kind of thing quite as well as they are. So uh, we really hope that you will support us through them. Now, I had a uh, an email from... Uh, someone who is interested in in donating, but they only want to do like a one-time donation. Is Patreon set up for that, or should they be donating? They want to do that way. Should should that come through just like a PayPal account? What what do you think there? Yeah, Patreon is not really set up for one-time donations. Uh, you know, yeah, if people want to do PayPal donations, that would be another option that we could set up. Um, PayPal has actually uh, stopped supporting donations officially. Um, I guess there's some tax or legal implications there, but what they, what a lot of people do do is you set up a, a fake good that you claim to be purchasing uh, from people. So uh, I, I have that set up on uh, on my uh, my blog, for example, for those people that prefer to just do a, an occasional one-time thing. Um, so we could, uh, yeah, we could look into setting that up as well. Um, so yeah, we appreciate, uh, the thought either way. All right. Well, Mike, should we roll into our awesome interview? Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk to people. Hi, I'm Paul Ludis, author of AppleWriter. You're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. All right. So sitting down with us today is Robert Bowditch and hopefully later, uh, Andrew Wilson, uh, perhaps best known to Apple II users as the uh, authors of uh, Geos for the Apple II, as we've been discussing on this month's show. So uh, we're uh, happy to have uh, Robert here to start. Uh, how are you doing, Robert? Great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, I think uh, so Mike and I are both huge Geos fans, and uh, I think uh, this, is, this is a lot of fun for us to be able to talk to the people that wrote it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, you know, you found yourself at Berkeley Softworks and, you know, how how Geos ended up on the Apple II, having started as a, a Commodore staple? Uh, sure. So first I can say something about how we got started, which is that you guys got really lucky because you got to talk with the interns. Uh, the three of us who started <laughs> the project, uh, who was uh, Andrew Wilson, uh, Brian Chin, and me, were all uh, Berkeley undergrads who had signed up for the co-op experience, which is that you take a quarter off or a semester off and you go work for a company and you get to learn all about what real software development's like. And Berkeley Softworks had been a company that was founded by a bunch of Berkeley grads. And they had a habit of hiring smart undergrads that they found through the co-op program. They'd have them work for, uh, uh, for Berkeley Softworks for six months. And then if it seemed to work out, then they'd either keep you on sort of part-time during school or they knew that they were going to grab you uh, when you graduated. And so the, th the five of us who started that summer, which I guess was uh, summer of 86, got some choices for projects. And there were a couple things that they were thinking about. And one of them was doing a, a version of BASIC that was going to be a graphical programming language. And there was a second project, which I don't remember what it was. And then there was this idea of, hey, why don't we take this thing that we already have, Geos, and we're going to move it over to the Apple II. And the three of you will do it. Um, we had uh, two managers at different points. At first, Eric Del Sesto, who was a um, who'd been with the company since the start, and he's worth his own little story. Uh, and Eric actually got us started and uh, showed us how to deal with uh, with Berkeley Softworks programming environment and uh, getting us into the product. And then 
later on, um, Clayton Jung was actually our manager. And I remembered him as a really cool guy who was having fun trying to keep us interns actually going on a real product here. And yeah, so that's the basic story. The three of us walk in, we get thrown on, on let's go make a real thing. And uh, over the next year, we actually got this thing shipped. It was great fun. Now, um, you, you, you mentioned the uh, Berkeley, uh, Berkeley programming environment, uh, just in general, what, what was that like? So that was one of the really special things about Berkeley Softworks is that um, my background was actually as a TRS-80 uh, user boom, back in the day. That was what I had as, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so really, I, I, I think it, it sort of is going into enemy territory when I suddenly was working on Commodore 64s and, uh, and Apple IIs. But um, Berkeley Softworks was interesting because they actually did all their stuff with cross-development, that they didn't actually develop on the raw machines. Uh, instead, they had some in-circuit emulators that would actually plug in in place of the CPU. And we did all of our coding up on a uh, Unix uh, mini-computer. I don't remember which brand, but they had something off in one of the closets. And you would actually do all your editing in, in VI or Emacs. You would um, compile it up there or assemble it up there because we were doing 6502 assembly. Uh, ship it down to the in-circuit emulator, it would actually load it in and run it. And then you had the advantage of being able to do things like hardware breakpoints of tell me when I write to this memory, which was great for memory smashers. Uh, the in-circuit emulators, and this made us really productive. Uh, it was a wonderful experience over uh, microcomputers of the day because suddenly we could actually do all this development really quickly that we could just um, be coding as fast as we can. We could have really uh, large files. We could um, do the assembly really quick. We didn't have to worry about swapping floppies. Uh, it all just magically happened. And the in-circuit emulator gave us all these really cool debugging features. And this really was the competitive advantage, I think, that, um, that Berkeley Softworks had over other companies because we had such an easy time doing development uh, compared to everybody else. Well, that's that's actually really interesting. I had no idea that uh, that they were doing that. That's uh, you know we talk a lot about on this show about the sort of the power of modern cross development. You know, there's a lot of Apple II development going on today, and it's so much more efficient than it used to be because, of course, we can do all of our development on modern platforms, modern tools, and then just uh, you know either run it in emulation or uh, or send it over uh, the serial to the hardware uh, for testing. Uh, so that's uh, yeah, that's cool. They had actually basically constructed that same environment uh, way back in '86. Well, and actually that, I think, came out of sort of where the company had come from, that Berkeley Softworks was actually a bunch of guys who'd been at Imagic, the video game company that was doing um, Atari 2600 cartridges back in the day. And some of them had actually come from, um, had originally been at, at Mattel working on a television. So uh, Brian Daughtery, Eric Del Sesto, a few of the others had actually been at, at, um, at Mattel back in the day and had done some of the initial games. And then they'd moved over to Imagic. Uh, when some of the folks from Atari broke off to form that company and decided they were going to make all their money selling uh, Atari cartridges. And so everybody grew up in, who came from the Imagic side with this idea that uh, we're going to do everything as cross-development because you can't actually develop on, on an Atari 2600, uh, as well as being really efficient because they were used to the days of all we have is 256 bytes of memory. Uh, all you have is 4K of, a, of, of uh, space for the machine code. And so a lot of the old timers were really, really, really good. And so the story of Berkeley Softworks is that, Intellivi is that uh, Imagic was uh, doing really good in the early 80s. And supposedly they were going to go public. And for some reason, the underwriter or somebody got sick and they had to delay the 
the uh, offering by six months. And right before they were going to make the company go public and everybody was going to make all this money and they were going to be able to buy Ferraris and stuff, uh, suddenly Atari announces, you know, hey, we're having a little problem selling video games because uh, the market's glutted. And this was, I don't know, probably late 80, 83 or something. I don't know for sure. That was high school for me. And so suddenly the company sort of, you know, they hold back. They say, well, we'll, we'll hold out waiting for the market to improve. And the 2600 market didn't improve. And the company went under and everybody fled to the four winds. And the Berkeley Softworks guys took all that knowledge of, of working in emulators and went over to trying to do custom stuff because they didn't want to deal with venture capital anymore. They wanted to own the company themselves. Um, and this is all the stories I heard, so I'm probably getting it wrong, but it's a good story anyway. And and so they supposedly, you know, the Geos actually came out of, um, they'd started this little company. They were going to do their own projects. And they had this idea of doing a uh, laptop computer uh, or a, a computer for inside a, a plane that was going to be something that would fit in the tray table and that you could actually read, you know, play little games and that sort of thing. And the story I'd heard was that it was being sponsored by somebody who was a battery manufacturer that thought this would be a good way to sell batteries. And so they developed the prototype and that's where they did the in-circuit emulator. And the company that was sponsoring this suddenly realized how much it was going to cost to actually turn this into a real product and backed out. And that was where they'd sort of gotten this experience of maybe we can take this thing that we've already been doing for a, a computer tray table a tray table computer and put it into uh, a real computer. Perhaps we can do something with all those uh, Commodore 64s that are sitting around in people's closets because their kids were like, I don't want to play with this. I want to play with my 2600 or my 5200 or uh, my, my Atari 7800 or whatever. And that's, so that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of effort to sell batteries. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, that was sort of the progression of, of doing video games and then going to making this custom computer and then using all that, that knowledge to be able to do microcomputer software better. That's very cool. So can you talk a little bit about, I mean, what was that like for you to start at this company, you know, as an intern, still in school, TRS-80 user, and to get handed an Apple II to port this, you know, extremely sophisticated and complex piece of software? I mean, what was that like? What, what was that, you know, how was that ramp up process? And what were some of the challenges that you, you guys were facing? I just remember it being great fun because we went from, you know, being students, uh, you know, I'd had a couple of summer jobs, you know, doing some retail, and then I'd work for a company doing um, basic programming on some simulations for um, a big construction company that wanted to simulate uh, dump truck um, productivity, you know, how fast they could dump dirt and how fast they could take things up a road. And so suddenly the four of the three of us are, are there, we're actually developing real software. Um, it's a familiar environment, it's fun. And there wasn't a lot of, I remember some pressure, but I don't remember a lot because they weren't quite sure where it was going to go to. But I remember a lot of, we were trying to prove ourselves and putting in a fair number of, you know, doing sil typical Silicon Valley, you know, we're going to stay late, we'll go get food, we'll come back. Um, I remember a lot of just sort of diving in and not really knowing the impact of what we were doing. So one of the stories I love to tell to my interns whenever I get an intern these days is that when I started, when we started at Berkeley Softworks, you know, the first job was, okay, build your own desks. We got some uh, tables here from uh, Scandinavian Designs. And then we, uh, you know, get our, we get a um, VT100 terminal 
actually it's a wise terminal, but we, we basically got our own you know, terminal there that we could actually program on. Connecting up to the, the mini computer, we got our Apple II and our emulator. And we start looking at the source code. And we, we, we didn't know anything about uh, source, uh, source control in those days. And so we just sort of copied everything over to a new directory. And I remember the first day I was looking through and um, looking at the header files. And the first header file I see says, uh, uh, define false zero, define true 255. And I look at that and I'm like, that's not right. On Unix, it's always one. And so I went and I just changed it. And you know, nobody else was really looking at this. We're not doing code reviews or anything how we do it these days. And you know, it's not causing any problem. It's our, our code, what's the problem? And um, about a year and a half later, uh, after Apple II Geos is shipped, uh, and I was working on uh, GeoCalc, suddenly one of the guys who's doing documentation for the programming environment comes over. And he's like, hey, Robert, um, can you give us some ideas of what's going on here. We noticed that um, in the basic headers for uh, the basic defines on the Commodore, the truth defined to be 255 and false, and uh, on the Apple II, truth defined to be one. What's going on there? I'm like, oh yeah, I think I changed that on the first day on the project. And it hadn't bitten us for a year and a half, but when they were trying to move um, GeoCalc or one of the other programs over, uh, one of the guys, one of the old timers who'd been doing Atari 2600 programming had realized that one of the easier ways to um, test for um, truth was, or to test if something was false, was rather than testing against uh, zero, he was actually, I think, decrementing and looking for um, a carry or something like that. And the code wasn't working. And he, he suddenly realized that this cool trick he'd been doing wasn't quite right. Uh, and I learned my lesson about, okay, don't change things because there's, there's always unforget, uh, uh, unknown uh, dependencies that you might have forgotten about. Now, after, um, after that first day of kind of reviewing the, the Commodore code, how heavily did you rely on that as moving forward? Was it just a, uh, was this a straight port from Commodore or did you guys mostly build from the ground up when you did the Apple version? It was mostly a straight port. So, uh, what I remember was that the way we broke it up was that I ended up doing sort of the low-level operating system stuff. Uh, Brian was doing, I think, text handling, and uh, Andrew was handling graphics. And so each of us was dealing with the oddities in that. So Andrew was having to worry a lot about Apple II-style um, graphics and how to deal with color and how to deal with the bitmap for uh, the screen and the like. Um, I remember my biggest problem was that we realized it wasn't going to quite fit in 64K of memory because of, of the memory map for the Apple II, and I don't remember the details. And we decided that what we'd do is we'd depend on having the uh, 128K option, um, which was done basically with bank swapping. That You could basically say that 0 to 200 and D0 to FF was one area, and then the rest was a separate area, and there were some... Um, IO, there was a memory location on IO port you could hit to actually change this. Uh, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. I apologize to all the, the Apple folks who actually remember this stuff. Unlike <laughs> nope, me. That's, that's actually right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, one of my clever things was how to make it so that I could actually have some of the library code hidden off in these other banks. And so uh, I remember spending way too much time on this clever idea where you would basically do a jump and then to, to a, a jump table. And if the jump table contained that library function in the same bank, it would just jump right off. Otherwise, it would jump to some little uh, helper routine that would flip the banks and then take you back. And at that point, the jump table is correct and you go on. 
And this, I thought, was the, the most clever thing I'd ever done. I just, I, I had a great time doing this. <laughs> and I remember it took forever. Um, I was having a hard time trying to get things started um, just because of all the fun of, of how do you debug this when you're, you're messing up memory. And uh, I remember at some point, I guess everyone else got a little worried and some lunchtime decided to go look at my code. And I remember being very hurt when I found out about this and, and learned the fun of actually having <laughs> a thick skin in this industry. And the other things I remember was you know, minor things like dealing with the change in screen resolution. So going from, you know, I, I guess Commodore's must have been 256 pixels wide. Um, and I think the Apple II was 320. And uh, once again, I apologize if I get this wrong. And I remember one of the, the projects I did late one night was uh, stretching the uh, bitmap for the uh, banner across the top of GeoWrite to be able to say, uh, make this bold, make this italics just because suddenly that wouldn't fit. And so that was uh, that required somebody to do it. And so uh, the fun of small companies is you get to do everything. It's not like you have to send it off to uh, the UX designer to, to adjust it. So when you were working there, did you have a sense of uh, the scale of what was being built there? I mean, the thing I think that stands out about Geos is that it, it was this thing that shouldn't have existed. I mean, it really was kind of you know, Macintosh and, you know, Amiga level GUI performance and complexity and sophistication on, you know, hardware that no one, no one I think would have predicted could do such things. And I think it really helped extend, you know, the lifetime of the Commodore and Apple II platforms probably much longer than they would have uh, had otherwise uh, because of the power of, you know, desktop publishing that it, it gave to this low end line of computers. So did you have that sense when you were working there that people knew that they were doing that? Or was it just a case of they felt it was a niche they were filling? It was a conscious decision on their part that I really got the sense of, like I said before, that they realized that there were all these Commodore 64s that had been thrown in the back of closets by kids because the games weren't up to uh, the video game consoles that their friends had. And there was this whole idea of pulling those out and making something that would please that market, you know, of all these people across America who had Commodore 64s and had not had a good use for them. Uh, that was really, you know, that was really their focus. And when you, when I went over to um, where tech support was, there was a room that had all the folks who handled phone support and email with all the classic uh, uh, props that a tech support group needs, which is like Nerf guns and toys and anything to cut the stress. You know, they'd have all these stories of talking to, you know, somebody in the middle of Pennsylvania or talking to somebody out in, in the desert in Nevada who's doing really cool things and is just so happy because they've got a computer that's actually doing wonderful things for them that they thought they wouldn't be able to do without spending a thousand or two thousand or well, twenty four hundred dollars for a Mac in those days. Uh, I remember one of the phone calls they really loved was uh, they were talking with this guy uh, about some problem he was having on the Commodore 64 version and suddenly there's this big roar and they're like, what was that? And he's like, oh, that was a F-16, some, some jet. And they're like, why, are you, why did you have one of those going by? And he's like, well, I'm on an aircraft carrier. And, and the idea that you know, somebody <laughs> on an aircraft carrier had the Commodore 64 version was really cool. And I think for, um, for us, you know, we just saw that they were able to do this on a Commodore 64. So how hard could it be to do this on an Apple II? I remember when we went off to, uh, to CES, they actually sent us away for a day so that we could actually... Uh, get to be on the show floor and actually see them trying to sell this to uh, little computer stores across the US. Of course, we get our chance to run around because that's part of the reason to send us there because it's kind of fun. 
and Apple had a booth and they were showing off HyperCard. And I remember we were all looking at HyperCard and saying, oh, wow, this is really cool. It's got a little programming language. You can do cool things. We should implement this for, for Geos because how hard could it be? We've already basically got the Mac on, on a uh, Commodore 64 and an Apple II. Doing HyperCard's got to be you know, just a little bit more work. And that was how cocky we were at the time, that we assumed that this was, that if it was on the Mac, we could probably do this. And a couple of the, the other folks were like, mm, I think there's a lot of stuff in there you don't really understand. So yeah, we, we had no fear. We had no sense that this was going to be impossible. We just did it. And how was it? Was it, a was it actually as difficult as they'd said, or was it as easy as you guys thought it would be? It was, I, I think that they assumed it would not be too hard. Uh, I would really, now that I've actually been in the industry and I've actually shipped software a bunch of times, I'd really love to talk with uh, some of the folks at the company and actually hear what was going on, because I suspect that there were some interesting discussions about okay, we're going to blow X hundred thousand dollars on three interns to, to do this. Now we're going to spend a huge amount trying to advertise this. And what the heck are we thinking? Because it was breaking into a completely different market. You know, that for um, Commodore 64, it seems really much more straightforward of, we know there are these computers out there. Um, it's going to be easy to get people interested because they don't have any other options. Whereas with Apple, you had, uh, you had other options. There was other software. It was a little more sophisticated uh, set of users. Uh, and so I suspect that marketing wise, it was probably a much more interesting project. But for us, it was just, we can do this and let's go hack it and we'll get it done. Yeah, the, the Apple market is, is interesting that way also because it's, uh, I mean, the Commodore version of Geos is not a threat really to, uh, to, to, to the Mac because it's really more of a toy. But I think that the Apple II version of it was a direct threat to the Mac because it, I think certainly for me personally, sort of delayed upgrading to a Mac much longer just because it, you know, allowed me to do sort of 85% of what I wanted, you know, a Mac to do. Uh, so I think in that right. regard, maybe Apple probably saw it as a, as a bit more of a threat. Well, they didn't see us as that much of a threat because they actually did give us some prototypes. So when the, I think the Apple IIc Plus came out, uh, one of our conference rooms had one bolted down. <laughs> with, with, with a secret code name that we were told, and, they, and we were very explicitly told, don't repeat this code name because Apple gives different code names to different companies so they can see where the leak comes from. Oh. Uh. So Apple Apple thought enough of us to, to seat us with one of those. And I don't know enough about how DTS works to know why they did that. But oh, That's cool. That's really interesting. Uh, well, I could also imagine you, you know, all the stories you hear about what life was like in the Macintosh division was that there was this big challenge between uh, within Apple about whether... Mac or the Apple II was going to be the uh, was what to focus on, and so I could imagine the Apple II division being, "Hey, they're going to keep us going. This is great." Yeah, there was definitely a that was the the, the key turning point for the company. There was a real identity crisis going on there. You know, there was the uh, status quo of of the two and uh, the the Steve Jobs pirate rebel group of the Mac and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think sort of looking back on it now, we get the sense that everybody kind of knew that the Mac was the future, but the Apple II was keeping the lights on. And uh, so they were probably happy to have anything that would help extend the life of that platform long enough for jobs and crew to finish whatever they were doing in that other building. But um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the 2C Plus because uh, we've actually talked about on the show here how the 2C Plus is kind of the the perfect Geos machine, uh, you know, with the accelerator and then and the mouse and everything. Uh, 
Geos runs really great on it. And the fact that you can install, you know, all of your major applications on a single floppy and still have room for your documents and everything. It's, it's very cool. The part I think I like best about it was that it didn't require the dongle. So I, I was pulling out my copy of Geos just now. And in both the, the GeoCalc and in the original Geos box, there's the little envelope with the uh, IRQ dongle. It was a little board that plugged into one of the slots, and all it did was uh, route from the clock over to the interrupt. So that we actually had interrupts because you didn't get that in standard uh, 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 in the standard Mac or uh, Apple OS. And that was really interesting because at first we were going to depend on having, say, uh, a mouse card, which would give you that for free, and then we realized that that was going to limit the number of people that would actually buy this. And so I remember a meeting in somebody's cube where we're talking about, oh, well, we're going to need some sort of a, a way of doing this. And, oh, how expensive is this going to be? We don't know if this is possible. And Doug Fultz, one of the uh, longtime Berkeley Softworks folks, was like, oh, no, that's not hard. And immediately sketches out minimal digital logic and starts arguing about how to get the uh, chip countdown. All the stuff that you know Wozniak was famous for, for the disk drive, but in a much smaller scale. And I just remember looking over at that going, wow, look at what he can do. <laughs> Someday I'll be able to do that too. And so we had a little, you know, who knows how much that cost, probably a dollar or something, a little board to, to give us the interrupts so that we could actually get, make, make the machine very responsive and be able to do the software well. It was kind of a cute trick. Yeah, that's, that, that's one of my favorite things to talk to, you know, younger programmers today about is the fact that, uh, you know, there was no source of interrupts uh, on the Apple II that you could use pre, you know, pre-Apple IIc. There was no vertical blank interrupt. And uh, I think that's, it's sort of a funny oversight. Even just a couple of years later, you wouldn't think of building a computer without that. But uh, uh, yeah, it definitely made, makes for some big challenges uh, and, you know, audio and, and mouse and other uh, similar areas uh, on the earlier twos. So was that hardware dongle the only version of copy or the only type of copy protection that was used on Apple Geos? Uh, as far as I know. Um, I remember like if you go and download the, I think the freeware version of it now, there's an, there's actually a file called about piracy and it talks about why we didn't copy protect this and why, how you should be a good person and not steal our software. And that I don't remember enough about. I I suspect we didn't. I seem to remember that there might have been some on the Commodore 64 version that they were doing some clever things with the disk drive and stuff, which which certainly helped. But it was really interesting because I remember uh, Andrew and Brian, when they first got on the project, they were both Apple II folks, and they were like you know, telling each other their hacker names <laughs> um, and you know how they communicated on the boards. And uh, suddenly we were we were going from being you know the teenagers who were doing very nasty things with software to uh, well, copying things at least. Uh, going from that to uh, to suddenly having our work be the thing that was being sold. Yeah, it's, it's funny how that can change your attitude about uh, uh, you start to feel like you're biting the hand that feeds you a little bit. Or well, I, I don't think it hit us that seriously, but I think it certainly gives a, a better idea of okay, you know, the the software is actually paying for uh, these nice offices and paying for this nice comfy chair. This was in the days before having uh, snacks at any hour. Now, you, you mentioned uh, going to CES and seeing the sales team at work. Did you have any sense of how sales were going? Because you know, for, for the Apple II especially, 86, 87 was pretty late in the, in the life cycle of that computer. So I don't know for sure. What I do know is that, yeah, we must have been shipping it in um, January of 07, I guess. So we must have gotten it done pretty quickly there. So I went back to school at the, at the beginning of January. I 
did a full semester, uh, did a digital design class where we had to actually design our own 6502, um, which turned out to be much harder than I thought. Uh, I remember that trying to um, work for Berkeley Softworks and do classwork at the same time was actually a bit of a pain. Uh, and my grades reflected it. And so the next semester, uh, so spring, uh, summer, or uh, fall of 88, I guess, fall of 87, I was actively trying to not spend as much time. You know, I did some of the work on, on geocalc and did, did the sideways printing feature and did a bunch of other stuff with printing. And at some point, I'd not gone into the office for several days because I was focusing on classes because I was being a good student. And as I'm walking across campus, I ran into one of the other uh, interns. And we'd all been working part-time since uh, we'd finished. And he's like, hey, were you at the all-hands meeting? I'm like, what all-hands meeting? He's like, oh, there was an all-hands meeting. Uh, we've just done layoffs because the Apple II product wasn't selling so good. And uh, so we've been laid off. So what I remember from that was that the Apple II stuff wasn't selling as well as they thought. It had been, you know, I don't know if it had been a big bet or not, but... Uh, They'd realized that some of their thoughts about doing a something equivalent for low-end PCs would be a really good idea. So basically, they cut back the company. They started ramping down on the idea of uh, at least Apple. I don't know about Commodore 64. And slowly, people started going back on. But I was at that point, I ended up, uh, I'd had my fun and uh, wanted to focus on graduating. And so I think, I think the company did have some hard times there. Um, but PCGO turned out well, and you know, GeoWorks stayed around for quite a while after that. So you mentioned uh, GeoCalc there. So there, uh, if you install, uh, you know, we'll link in, in the show notes to uh, to a uh, complete Geos package that uh, our listeners can install and play with. Uh, and there's a demo on there, sort of a demo movie of GeoCalc. Uh, but uh, I was actually not able to find any evidence of it ever having shipped. Did that product actually go out? Do you know on the Apple II? Uh, I'm sure. Sh- I'd be almost certain it did. I certainly have a boxed copy, and I can't imagine we would have made that without. So, so yes. So the the GeoCalc box actually has a full copy of Geos, I assume, or at least it has the OS. Maybe it doesn't actually have the um, GeoWrite and uh, and GeoDraw. I guess I need to find an Apple II to see if it'll actually work. And it came with the dongle too. As far as I've been able to tell, there was a couple of different packages. The base one that had GeoWrite and GeoPaint, uh, and then. There was a version that came with a mouse, and then there was a version that came with the interrupt generator card if you were running on a 2E without a mouse. Um, uh, so that seems to be sort of... And then there, and then GeoPublish came out, it seems like, as a separate package. Um, but I haven't been able to find any evidence of GeoCalc, so that's really interesting that it definitely exists. It might just have come out too too soon before they decided not to do it. Um, yeah, I remember the, the version with the mouse. I think that's the one my parents have. Because I think I gave them a copy of that. I've I've got the original Apple Geos, which was to uh, bring back lots of reminiscing from from folks as old as me. It's one of those bits of software where they actually gave you the manual in a three ring binder. It's a custom three ring binder, but it's still in a three ring binder. And I just remember looking at that going just now, saying, "Wow, they didn't even need to bind it. They just sort of put it in a three ring binder." Hmm. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've still got my three-ring binder as well, and I'm uh, I'm actually a, a big fan of it because it was very, very exciting to get that at the time because it was the kind of thing that like IBM did with their, you know, 360 manuals and things like that. Like it was this big sort of, it was like this 
professional sort of industrial way to, to package documentation so that you could rearrange the pages and add new pages as you got new software and so on. So that to me was, that was like, I felt like I was big time for, uh, for having that on my shelf. Uh, that was, uh, I always thought really cool. And then of course, nothing else ever really ended up coming out. So I never got to add any pages to my binder, but uh, I liked the idea that I could. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why they did it. I was just, I was just assuming that it was cheaper to do it that way than it. And uh, the lead time was smaller than trying to get it bound, but that might be silly. Yeah, that's, prob- that's probably true too, actually. Yeah. Uh, do you have an Apple II now? Do you still have one or have you ever had one? I No, I've never actually had an Apple II. So I had a TRS-80 uh, Model 3. So I never had the fun of actually using a pencil eraser on the, the tin contacts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, I, it, I think it's sort of interesting that right before I'd done the internship, I think, uh, was when... Berkeley had started getting Sun workstations. So they had a, a lab there that had 26 Sun 350s, which were the Pizza Box computers, diskless, uh, 68OXO processor, running Unix, uh, bitmap, you know, huge bitmap display. And to some extent, I looked at that and I said, this is, this is the coolest thing ever. Why would I ever want anything else? I can have Unix. I've got this really cool computer. I've got a big, uh, a big screen. And so at that point, the, the world of mini computers sort of lost interest for me. Uh, and, you know, my only aim in life was to get something with a really big monitor. <laughs> and so, uh, I, yeah, so I, I'd gotten a, a Mac SE when I went to grad school uh, and kept thinking about getting one of those, you know, $1,000 20-inch monitors and never did. And when I was at IBM, I found a, a dead Sun 350 that somebody had been using that I was like, hey, can I bring that home? And I remember doing installs and having fun with that uh, and never really did anything with it. But yeah, never really looked back at the, the PC world. Uh, if, if I was going to do anything, I'd probably go for something like, you know, um, like one of the Sol 20s. The ones, those were the, one of the early, uh, early uh, late 70s computers with the, the wood sides or uh, actually the first thing I ever really played with seriously, which was a MSI 8080 with the, uh, with the switches on the front, the the computer from War Games. War Games computer, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you uh, you may start a new movement of uh, workstation retro computing in a few <laughs> years. Uh, get together when play play with Spark stations and SGIs. <laughs> yeah, there's already those folks, and unfortunately, uh, retro computing takes an awful lot of space, and it the does. garage is already full. <laughs> yeah, especially uh, that that graphics workstation type of retro computing. Uh, I used to work at SGI back in the early 90s, and uh, I mean, oh, those wow. monitors were 60 pounds. <laughs> yes, the world of flat screens is so boring. Yeah, it is indeed. Uh, so uh, yeah, but you do have, a, you said, a boxed copy of GeoCalc uh, for the Apple II? Yes, the collectible one now that I realize. Yeah, yeah, we should try and figure out how to get that uh, imaged. Uh, from you. It's a shame you don't have an Apple II and we could walk you through the process, but uh, we'll have to find some other way. I guess if you've got it, one of our listeners must have it. We'll try and track it down. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the few holes, I think, in the uh, Asimov archive uh, is, is GeoCalc. Wow. Yeah, that, that sort of uh, brings up another point that, you know, if you, especially if you go out there today, there's a huge archive of, of uh, add-ons that people have written for the Commodore version of, of Geos, and yet there's really not much at all for, for the Apple side of the house. Why do you, why do you think that is? As, as somebody who is not actually part of sort of the Apple II community, I think I'd have a hard time with mm, that. Okay. Um, I've heard some of the reasons. I was listening to, you, to the podcast with the Beagle Brothers uh, programmers uh, 
few weeks ago. And I remember them commenting about doing all the add-ons and I, it sounds like there was a much bigger ecosystem and there were much better, there were a lot of other alternatives in the Apple world. Hmm. Yeah. I think uh, Apple works was sort of the, uh, the had, had the fan base that Geos did on the Commodore. I think uh, it was Geos was certainly a little more niche uh, on the Apple. Um, so I wonder sort of related to that, uh, you know, digging through uh, sort of researching Geos for, for this show, uh, there's so much more information available uh, now than there was at the time about this stuff. And it seems like that there was uh, intention to provide like an SDK uh, and this sort of geoprogrammer uh, environment for developing Geos applications. And it certainly existed on the Commodore uh, and there's references to it on the Apple, uh, to the Apple version in the documentation. Uh, but again, it's another product. I, I can't find any evidence ever, ever actually existing aside from offhand references in documents. Is that something, just this geoprogrammer environment that you know, did it exist or not? I don't think it ever went to the Apple II. So the, the story I had about changing True and them finding out about it a year later, that was when they were actually doing the SDK um, manual. And I think I've got a, I photocopied that from a friend long ago. Okay. But I think that was the point that they started doing this and thinking that they could build an ecosystem and have other people developing. And it was all sort of an interesting question about how people would do that because yeah, we were doing some very clever things with um, 6502 assembly. You know, we had the idea of virtual registers uh, in page zero, so that you had, so that you were actually coding when you developed for um, for Geos by talking about transferring 16-bit values between these these uh, 16 16-bit uh, 16 registers. And so, some of that cleverness, I think, would still work on a uh, desktop machine, but. Like I said, I think one of the big advantages that uh, Berkeley Softworks had was that whole idea of, of uh, cross-assembling and doing all the development up on the Unix box. And so I can imagine that even with GeoProgrammer that uh, there probably still would never have been the great products. Yeah, it's interesting reading the documentation. It seems clear they were really trying to create a, a sort of a universal platform between the two machines. And, you know, they did a lot of really clever looking things. Uh, you know, there's a consistent sprite API, for example, that works on Commodore or Apple II or Commodore 128, whether or not you have hardware sprites, it's the same API, and it has this virtual sprite system for the Apple II, which I thought was uh, really, really clever. Uh, so yeah, the, 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 I think quality of the software engineering that's in it really shows through, uh, you know, even, even as a user, I mean, you see it in how much, you know, quicker Geos boots than any kind of competing product. It's funny, uh, when I did finally upgrade my uh, my 2E to a 2GS, it was a bit of a letdown from Geos in many ways because uh, you know the, fi the file system was much slower and much more complex. You know, you, you know, you can boot Geos a dozen times in the time it takes GSOS to get running uh, to, at a third of the clock speed. So I think that's uh, that's a tribute to uh, the engineering that's in it. And uh, and some of that I think was us, and some of that I think was the folks who did the original Commodore 64 version who were who were definitely great programmers. Uh, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about the sprite stuff, and that hadn't been a part of the code I'd looked at. And I assumed that that was something that we already had sort of that support underneath, and it was easier to actually just uh, emulate it on the Apple II rather than have to rewrite all that code. And so uh, that was probably Andrew Wilson's work. And so it sounds like he did some cool stuff. Yeah, hopefully we can track him down. One of the biggest challenges I imagine on porting it to the Apple II was dealing with uh, the double high res graphics screen on the Apple II, which, you know, while 
giving you a lot of pixels, which is great for a GUI. It's also obscenely complicated to program. You know, every other column of pixels is in a separate memory bank, and you have to flip the banks back and forth just to draw a horizontal line. It's just it's sheer madness, the way that memory is laid out. Um, I suspect that that's something that once you figured out the rough idea that it wasn't too bad. I can imagine the spriting stuff might have been more complex just because I can imagine a lot of code to try to reproduce all the functionality and figure out what, and also figure out what functionality not to bring over. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, a lot of it, you know, once you've abstracted it away, you know, with some clever low-level stuff, then it's kind of it's kind of a solved problem at that point. But uh, yeah, I can imagine that first uh, few uh, weeks of working on that would uh, would be yeah. quite a challenge. Yeah, you you definitely start losing hair that way. I mean, for me, I think that was the equivalent <laughs> of um, the sideways printing that we were when we were trying to figure out what features to put into uh, GeoCalc. I kept saying, oh, you know, we should. I, somebody brought over. Uh, sideways, which was a PC uh, uh, add-on so that you could actually print thing, print large spreadsheets sideways. And I was like, hey, we could do this. And everybody else was like, oh, no, that's really complicated. And how are you going to do that? And I said, well, you know, we've already got this idea of doing virtual rows um, to send to the printer. We just have to do that with everything rotated. And it turned out not to be that nasty a bit of code. And what I remember of that printing code was that I spent a heck of a lot more time just trying to test on every printer and make sure that everything was working back in the days before unit testing, um, that that was a heck of a lot more complicated than it was to actually do the um, do the sideways code, if I remember. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I was I was going to ask about the printer drivers and how, how those were structured. One of the things that really set Geos apart, I think, is how the printing on it just kind of worked. Uh, you know, a lot of us had weird... Japanese knockoffs of Epson printers uh, with our Apple IIs that didn't necessarily always work with every piece of software. And uh, but Geos, I distinctly remember, I just it just recognized my printer and worked uh, in every application, which I'd never seen happen before. So do you remember how how that was structured and how they managed to achieve that? So some of that some of that already had come from the uh, the Commodore sixty four version. So I remember that the device drivers had a you know, relatively straightforward way of saying okay. Here's, here's how many pins we have. Here's how many rows we have across the uh, page. Here are the uh, various control characters to be able to kick things into graphics mode and not. So they already had the abstractions so that when I went to the Apple II, you know, I made some changes, but not a huge amount. I remember I tried adding a bunch of clever things to the Apple II version because I could. Uh, we can argue about uh, whether that was the right thing or whether that caused problems uh, as I made the two diverge. But um, but yeah, I think the idea of just having a constant interface and being able to throw these things off on a disk somewhere so you only brought in the ones you need was the big deal. Yeah, the driver structure of it from a user's perspective was was really quite elegant. Uh, you just had to have a couple of files sitting in your system folder and then everything would just work. Um, and uh, they even there was even a little wizard that would walk you through, you know, ask you questions about what kind of hardware you had and would configure your system folder for you, which, uh, you know, is something that... You know, PCs didn't do until uh, many, many years later, which uh, always impressed me as well. I don't even remember that. So um, somebody must have done it. I don't remember who did it. Now I want to go look at the printer at the uh, SDK manual and see about uh, all the details on the printer drivers. Is that an official document, or is that? Yeah, I think so. I could, if you wanted me to go run off into the garage, I can probably go find it somewhere. <laughs> No, this was the yeah, this was the official SDK. I don't know if it had anything on printers, but with luck. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll link to that document in the show notes. It's actually quite a good read. It uh, 
uh, gives you a lot of the detailed internals uh, of how things were written. So it's a lot of fun. And I think, again, much like using Geos does, I mean, Mike and I both dove into Geos uh, this week and really played with it a lot. And I think for 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 us, what was striking is how sophisticated it actually was. I think I'd forgotten, you know, it holds up surprisingly surprisingly well to, to modern GUIs in terms of the feature set and uh, the uh, just the the elegance of the you know user installation procedures and getting up and running with it and so on. And uh, I think that is also reflected in the technical side of it. You know, the sophistication of the APIs uh, is also there. It really holds up well with uh, with modern uh, GUI architectures. I think. I'm glad it aged well. I don't think I would have imagined when I was, you know, twenty something, very low twenties. I don't think I even thought for a moment about whether that software is going to be in use in five years, let alone twenty. So, <laughs> yeah, are you surprised to to hear that people are still interested in it and that there's still podcasts and a community out here playing with this stuff? Uh, no, just because I know, well, that's the wonderful thing about the internet is when the internet came along, suddenly it's like, oh, wow, everybody's got a forum and there's a heck of a lot of people interested in wild and crazy things. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the, that's the wonderful thing about the future. <laughs> it is whatever strange thing you're into. There's a couple other hundred people out there that are into it too. <laughs> yes. And, you know, considering all the times I go look at, you know, I think I actually do have a TRS-80 emulator somewhere. But uh, I certainly know about the community for that. And I know about all the communities for some other things that uh, are current hobbies. So, so what, uh, what are you up to these days? What, uh, what, what did you do after uh, Berkeley and, uh, and since then? I guess that's a long period of time, but uh, <laughs> in hard words or less. Well, I can do the long answer. Uh, probably easier <laughs> than the short it. answer. Um, so the interesting thing for me was, so we would go off and we do all this really cool software. Um, and actually ship the product and have a box to show. And that was really wonderful. But I remember uh, there was one guy who had a master's degree who was able to do a lot of the, the low-level work on the operating system for PC Geos. And I thought, oh, that would be great fun. I should do that. And that kept me from sort of trying to stay in uh, consumer software. That made me think grad school would be interesting, that understanding operating systems would be better. And you know, sent me away for, for six years for the wonders of, of uh, grad school in computer science. And so I came out of that, uh, got to be in a research lab for a while, finally got tired of the East Coast, moved back to the Bay Area, spent several years at Apple in the developer tools group, which was great fun and very tiring. Uh, I was there from 99 to 2007, so I ended up working on uh, Mac OS X, uh, from some of the early uh, developer previews. Uh, DP4, I think, probably had some of my code. Uh, all the way through, I guess, 10.5. You know, had some, did some things I think were pretty cool there. So one of those was the refactoring feature in Xcode, which was one of the last things I worked on. Uh, so if people like that, that's that was me. Cool. Yeah, I use that feature. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I still use it, and I'm really happy that, that I've got it. Every now and then I'll see flaws. Um, I would love to see the bugs. Uh, sadly, I left just before it uh, it shipped, and so I never got to see sort of what complaints people had. Uh, the other thing I worked on was early on, uh, I get called in by my... Uh, so early 2000, just before we're about to ship uh, Mac OS 10.0, Dave Payne, my manager, calls me in and says, uh, oh, hey, you know, we've got this problem that everything's launching too slowly, that it's taking four seconds to launch mail. And... Kevin, the guy who's the dynamic linker guy, didn't have time to deal with it. 
and was blowing off Bertrand, the, the VP responsible for Mac OS X, when Bertrand came, came to Kevin and said, hey, you know, we should do that, that pre-binding thing, that sort of automatically burning in the addresses of things so we don't have to uh, figure them out when we load where, where printf is, for example. Uh, Kevin blew him off. Bertrand goes off for a weekend and hacks something together in a cafe in Palo Alto. And Dave Payne comes to me and says, hey, we need you to take Bertrand's code and make it into, a, into something that'll actually work. Uh, and so pre-binding was the idea that when an application starts up, you bring in a whole bunch of different dynamic libraries, different bits of code that are part of the system or part of the application. And you need to stitch everything together to say, well, when I call printf, I need to go to 10,000. When I call uh, change the cursor, I need to go to this address. And normally that all got fixed up when you launched the process. But uh, that was really slow because there was all this lookup. And so what the folks at Next had done back in the 90s to speed up launches was that they would install all the software on a machine, take a look at sort of the, the whole picture to see where everything was loading, figure out exactly where to load the libraries, just like the Apple II of, of put it in, at these addresses. And then rewrite the binaries so that they all knew exactly where all the functions were going to be that were in other libraries. And so I got to do that for Mac OS 10.0. Uh, and this was something that if you've ever installed uh, Mac OS, you'll often see this point where it says optimizing system performance, and then that goes off for a couple of minutes to do something. And that was me. Uh, I did that. <laughs> so um, uh, as I like to say, I, I always wanted to have an effect on the world. I just was hoping it was going to be a positive one. And Bertrand corrected me on that. You know, he, he heard me saying that. He's like, no, no, no. This, you, you actually got everything launching fast, and so that was a really good thing. But that was one of the things I worked on. And then there was uh, the, the secret project where uh, my manager pulls, actually, my VP pulls me aside one day and says, hey, Robert, I need you to go to this meeting. And uh, this was just as Apple was starting to think about actually doing the uh, Intel switch. And we'd already been building everything for Mac OS for um, Intel and for PowerPC since, you know, 1996, you know, Next had been doing it, Apple kept doing it. And they realized that to be able to actually switch, we needed an emulator. And so they, they hired a company to actually do this work, a place in uh, Manchester, England called Transitive. And they had a whole bunch of crazy kids fresh out of college that were working on this, but they needed some people from different teams inside Apple to help them out. And so there was one guy from graphics and one guy from low-level libraries. And I had touched enough of the dynamic loader code for starting up processes that they put me on that. And so I got to spend six months working on Rosetta, the, the PowerPC emulator that was uh, for Intel Macs. And uh, the fun of that was I was basically told, you know, don't tell anybody on your team what's going on. Don't tell your manager what you're doing. You've been pulled away to a secret project. Um, make them, the, the line I remember was, make them think you have a drug habit and you're not coming in <laughs> regularly anymore. I don't think that was, uh, I think I actually did hear those lines from somebody. Uh, but so I got to spend, you know, six months uh, across the street in, in uh, Mariani 1, Mariani 3, working with Jim Mensch, who'd been uh, one of the Apple II guys. And uh, uh, Mac, uh, he'd worked on Mac emulators in the past and worked with a few other people. And got to have the fun of working on this secret thing that I couldn't talk about. And my wife knew that I was getting, I was sitting someplace else and she knew I had to travel off to England and didn't know why. Uh, and then, you know, two years later, I got to say, hey, you know, kind of curious what I was doing two years ago. Well, check the news tomorrow morning. Yeah, that's, it's funny. Those are, those legacies uh, both went on for quite a while. I mean, yeah, Rosetta was, was a key piece of software for 
I mean, only recently was it dropped from, from OS X, and uh, a lot of software still relied on it. And, uh, of course, the optimizing system software step still happens every time you install something on, uh, on Mac OS, so that's, uh, that pre-binding uh, lives on as well. So that's quite a contribution. Well, though luckily uh, Nick Kledzik rewrote all that, and so it's, it's much more efficient than it used to be. But um, So, yeah, did that. Was at Apple for a while. Uh, still very proud of those days. Uh, was at uh, Google for several years. Uh, and recently left that for some time off. Uh, Google was very interesting because uh, I started running into all the old Berkeley Softworks folks. Uh, I kept making the joke that Google was was one of these places that everybody good you ever worked with will be there. <laughs> and uh, there were five or six. There were a bunch of people who had been who had stayed at at Berkeley Softworks and had worked on uh, on GeoWorks, the uh, the PC version, and had gone through all of you know, gone through GeoWorks's ups and downs. Um, and then slowly as that faded, they all started moving over to, uh, a lot of them were in Seattle and they ended up moving over to uh, to Google up in the uh, uh, Seattle and um, Kirkland offices. Yeah, it sounds like your next stop needs to be Facebook and then you've completed the uh, the Silicon Valley shuffle. <laughs> Everybody uh, seems to make, make that loop, Apple, uh, Google, and Facebook. That's certainly a common one. Uh, on the other hand, it really... One of the things that uh, I liked about Apple was that I was there in the days when people often used the term beleaguered. You know, it was people weren't, you know, there was there was just constantly this push of, okay, we need to ship Mac OS X to prove that it really is there. We need to get all the patches out so that people can actually develop on it. We need to get, uh, make it so that Xcode is good enough so that, um, well, we need to get it so that um, people are willing to develop Mac o, uh, Mac o binaries the native form instead of old, um, instead of the sort of the Mac OS 9 binary style, which Adobe and Microsoft were doing, then we needed to make sure that they were actually building an Xcode so that when we switched um, architectures that everybody would actually develop for Mac OS 10 instead of saying, hey, Code Warrior is not supporting it. We don't want to deal with this. So that combination, that was very startup-like, you know, the idea that there weren't a lot of people because Apple then and hopefully still is now um, still thinks in terms of being keeping staff very low and giving lots of responsibility and having people responsible for a wide range of stuff. And that reminds me a lot of Berkeley Softworks, of small teams, you know, having two or three people working on something big uh, and having a lot of chances to play around with whatever's necessary and actually be really proud of what I worked on. So I could imagine the next place might actually be kind of small. That was definitely a Apple's uh, sort of right after Apple's low point there, uh, the late '90s uh, was almost the end for uh, for the uh, for the big Apple. I, I still have a lot of res- respect for the Apple folks, and I mean, I think they've got a lot more constraints now, just because suddenly everybody's looking at them, and they have the issues of Mac OS X versus the phone. Um, but you know, I I can't imagine being on a different operating system these days. Uh, and yeah, me neither. <laughs> even with some of the changes, it's still. You know, it still is is being as perfect as I expect. Yeah, it's it's still so much more pleasant than any of the alternatives for sure. I think. Uh, yeah, well, I guess we drifted off Apple II there a bit. Uh, Mike, do you have any other sort of Apple II related questions? No, no. I think uh, this has been this has been really great. It's uh, been a lot of fun reliving. I I was telling uh, Quinn earlier we recorded um, the new segment. Um, you know, and we were talking about how we came to Geos and. My parents used to have to bribe me for good grades in high school, and, and one of the things that they bribed me with was a copy of Geos, and that sort of 
really revolutionized kind of how I envisioned being able to use my Apple II. And, and I, I saw, you know, going from, I think I, I did have Apple Works at that point, but having just even a, a an all-in-one um, pr productivity suite that, that had the GUI there on my two, and I didn't have to go buy, buy a Mac to, to get that was, was really something special. Cool. I am, I'm glad that I was a positive influence on your life. <laughs> Absolutely. <you were. laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll second that, that, uh, I was probably the only 12 year old, uh, who asked for Geos for Christmas, but, uh, I did. And, uh, and when I got it, that was one of the best Christmases ever because I was really excited by by GUI uh, technology and uh, by desktop publishing in particular. And uh, so to be able to play with that on my two without having to uh, somehow find the money to upgrade to a 2GS or a Mac was, uh, was really, really quite exciting. And uh, yeah, I used GeoPaint uh, in particular for many, many, many years. And uh, GeoWrite was my, my go-to word processor as well. So uh, yeah, great, uh, great contributions. I think probably more than you may have realized at the time for sure. <laughs> Well, that's, I think, what we're all aiming for when we're, we're uh, building these systems, that we're actually making a difference and people are actually getting some cool uses out of them. So I'm very happy. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for the chance to share stories. And uh, yeah, you got me remembering a bunch of things I need to go uh, check on now. Great. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Maybe hopefully we'll try and figure out how to get, uh, get your geocal floppies over to somebody who can image them. <laughs> And I'll get you a photo of the uh, GeoCalc box so you have proof that it actually did. <laughs> yeah, that, did would get be, made. that would be awesome, actually. If you want to send that over, we'll post it in the show notes for people to see. That'll be cool. Will do. Thank you very much for uh, talking with me. All right. Well, that was fantastic to uh, get all yeah, of that. Yeah, I love uh, that. That was so great. Yeah. So uh, let's. Uh, so as part of our Geos themed episode here, uh, Mike and I spent some time playing with Geos, and uh, you know we were both big uh, big avid users of it uh, back in the day. But uh, uh, I don't know about you, Mike, but I actually hadn't used it in probably twenty years. So uh, was it uh, was it new to you as well? Sort of rediscovering it. Yeah, this is this has been a while. Um, my parents used to to bribe me with software uh, in in high school to to get good grades. You know, if I actually put forth an effort in in some class and and got a B or an A, uh, they would buy me a piece of software. And one of the ones that that I got was Geos, and and I loved it and hadn't used it in a long time and uh, played around with it quite a bit yesterday and and just sort of rediscovered how much I really really like Geos. Cool. Yeah, me too. I, I don't remember how I first heard about it, but it was one of those things that I begged and begged and begged uh, my parents for. Uh, I was at that age where, you know, you beg your parents for things over and over. And uh, it finally appeared under uh, under the Christmas tree one year. And uh, I'm probably the only, I don't know, 12-year-old or however I w was who asked for productivity software that year. But uh, it was so <laughs> exciting to see it. And uh, so it came with different different packages. There was uh, sort of a basic software-only version that was just like GeoWrite and GeoPaint um, and, and the core operating system. And then they had other versions that came with a mouse. Uh, and there was another version that came with uh, an interrupt generator card, uh, which uh, we, we'll talk about here in a minute. So uh, I thought I'd follow up that interview with just sort of an overview of uh, some of the kind of technical details of, of Geos uh, for people who maybe maybe aren't familiar with it or maybe have uh, forgotten uh, some of this stuff. Uh, so for starters, if you want to play with Geos yourself, uh, there are some great uh, repositories of it uh, online, and we'll link to uh, my favorite one. Uh, Asimov has quite a good uh, collection of Geos stuff these days. For a while, they... Oh, and... mm -hmm. 
and, and before we move on, uh, uh, since you're since you're talking about um, websites and stuff for this, there's a, also a great overview if you just want to see it in action and, and have a nice uh, review. Uh, Toasty Tech does the um, does the uh, graphic user interface histories, and it's got a great write up for for Geos, the Apple II version. So we'll have that as well. Cool, awesome. Yeah, and for a while, uh, Geos was a little bit unobtainium. Uh, the current rights holder uh, of it is a company called Breadbox, and they uh, they still make actually a GUI system um, for PCs that presumably was originally perhaps based on the PC version of Geos that came along in the I think in the 90s I think, but um, they released the Apple II version of Geos to freeware in 2003, and. Uh, for a long time, they hosted it on their own site. You could actually just download it right from them. And then those somewhere along the way, those links quietly went away. And then it was kind of on Obtanium for a long time. Uh, but uh, a site called Mac GUI, which has also kind of a cool collection of uh, Apple II stuff hiding in their site, uh, they fitting in site. Yes, thank you. Uh, they were uh, they were uh, hosting it as well, and uh, I think we talked about it a few months ago on on the show here. We'd mentioned it, mm -hmm. and a listener had written in. I think I had said, "Oh, I couldn't find it," and a listener had written in saying, "Oh, well, here it is on Mac GUI," and then someone else followed up and I think put it up on Asimov. Uh, so it's now now available there. Uh, so we will link to that so you can download it, and. Um, uh, let's see. So yeah, let's. Uh, I, I kind of want to roll into my uh, my experience with it here. Yesterday, I spent basically most yeah. of the, most of the day uh, playing with it. <laughs> I didn't quite intend to. Uh, Mike and I had to kind of agree, low. Let's both do some kind of a little project on it just to kind of get back into that geos mindset. Um, and uh, please don't be as cool as mine. Please don't be as cool as mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, well, I, I had intended to do something, I don't know, in GeoPaint or GeoWrite. And what I actually ended up doing was spending most of the time playing with uh, the operating system itself. Uh, I, I imagine this is how Linux users are. Um, I actually spent the day playing with driver combinations and things and uh, having kind of uh, some fun with that. Um, so I guess the, the, the first thing I'll say is that the uh, 2C Plus actually is kind of the perfect GeoS machine. Um, it... Uh, Turns out that GeoS is actually uh, installable on large Protoss volumes, and I didn't actually know that at the time because if you use it on the five and a quarters, it sort of seems like this walled garden. You know, the disks aren't readable by anything else, and you know they boot into their own little little world. So, but hiding in the um, GeoS menus, there is a tool that lets you install GeoS uh, executables onto uh, Protoss volumes, and so you can actually uh, install it on you know a hard drive or um, uh, one of the suggested use cases they have is actually installing it on a three and a half inch disc on a 2C plus. So I actually did that. I spent some time doing that, and uh, it works really, really well. Uh, the, so you know the the it was designed to run on on five and a quarters, so the applications are all quite uh, quite tight. But uh, if you install it on a three and a half inch disc, then you've basically got room for every GeoS application pretty much, uh, plus plenty of room for your data on a single three and a half inch floppy. So it kind of creates this ultimate GeoS experience environment uh, that you can boot off a single disc. And uh, so I did that, and I built that uh, into a uh, disk image that uh, I will share in uh, the show. Uh, we'll, we'll host it here uh, on our site, uh, which of course we can do legally. And uh, I will link to that in the show notes if you want to play with it. It's kind of a handy, you know, all-in-one way to way to uh, experience it. Uh, and uh, I'll just I'll take this moment to announce a sort of a mini contest. Uh, if you uh, crack open that Geos disk image that I'm going to share, 
there is a contest in there, and uh, I will let you find it. There's a secret phrase hiding uh, in that disk image, and uh, first person to email us that at feedback at open-apple.net will win uh, nothing at all except, uh, I guess, fame <laughs> and glory. <laughs> So that was password my... for today is Blondie Hacks. <laughs> yes. So that that was my, kind of my Geos project is I built this kind of ultimate uh, disk image uh, Geos environment for the 2C Plus. And if you boot it and find the secret phrase and email it to us, uh, you uh, you will be the winner of our contest. Um, and uh, just to make it extra extra challenging, the mouse driver in that package is for the 2C. So if you boot it into Virtual 2. Uh, you will find it almost unusable because the uh, tracking speed is wrong. So uh, this is uh, uh, intended to weed out the uh, cheaters so you can only <laughs> really do this on a real 2C+. So gauntlet thrown. Uh, Mike, what uh, what did you do with Jess? Well, one of the things, and in fact, you, you mentioned this, um, was that one of the things about Geos that always bothered me was that it was this walled garden application thing. And uh, so when you saved a file, it was in Geos format and you could only access it through Geos and couldn't move it to anything else. And so I spent most of yesterday uh, tweaking around in uh, Apple Pascal and came up with a sort of semi-maybe functional way to at least extract the uh, the Geos word processing files. Um, really? And I, yeah, it's partially complete right now and I'm hoping that, that I'll be able to... Um, automate like a, a transfer over to the to Apple Works or or other doc format or text format. So Wow that's, that's what I did yesterday. That's super cool. I think you I think you win. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah, way yeah, yeah. way more awesome than what I did than what I did. Well I don't know because you you were describing it and I, and I was thinking I, I hope that you know if that the install process for the Geos to put it on like a, the, the Protoss volumes doesn't include like oh that also frees up your data because then like <laughs> that would have completely uh, um, invalidated or not invalidated but negated the need for what I did so <laughs> yeah it definitely does not uh, what it allows you to do is you can now you know look at the after you do this Protoss install process you can look at the disks in Protoss um, and you'll you'll see your files there. Uh, but they're not Protoss files, so you still can't, you know, open them in anything else or view them in any kind of way. So they're, yeah, that's right. funny. They're sort of locked. They're still locked up, but you can see them. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> which is progress, because otherwise the disks just sort of look like garbage uh, to, to Protoss. Right. Um, yeah. And so, and in fact, related to all this, actually, there is... Um, I found a, in my research a wiki that documents the Apple Geos file formats, and uh, there is some effort to write tools to convert to and from Geos files um, to and from Protoss. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, but uh, yeah, your your thing sounds very cool, Mike. So I've so I've duplicated other people's work. Excellent. <laughs> uh, I think what you're doing is actually a little different. I think they're talking about converting the files, but not necessarily extracting the data. Just kind of making the block headers readable. I think is all they're talking gotcha. about. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they they use some weird uh, compression format thing that that took me a little while to kind of count mm. through and figure out what was really going on there. I'm still I'm still getting half trashed files sometimes, and I'm not really sure. And this only applies to the word processing. I, I had no success with like. Geos Paint or anything else mm, like that. Yeah. So this is not a a, a complete all-in-one solution, at least not at this time. 
Yeah, I can only imagine what uh, <laughs> what format GeoPaint might be in. I'm sure that's some totally arbitrary uh, binary blobs of shape data and stuff. Yeah, probably so. Yep. Um, well, I guess actually it's probably just a big bitmap, uh, but heavily compressed. I think all the GS, yeah, as you probably discovered, this GS stuff seems to be all compressed because the files are actually uh, quite pleasingly small, and uh, I think that's you know no doubt necessary. It was intended to be to be you know run off five and a quarter inch floppies, and uh, you know it started life on the Commodore 64, which has even smaller floppies, so it needed to be tight uh, in order for you to have enough space to have you know GeoPaint, let's say, and your actual documents on the same disk. That said, it's barely possible to do that. You know, if you're going to use GeoS on five and a quarters, you really want to have two drives. Um, right. You know, you can create at least. Yeah, <laughs> you can create what they call work disks, which is basically a blank geos disk that can hold files and uh yeah it really it really is happiest having uh you know your application in one drive and your data in the other not to uh, to talk of vaporware features or anything but my my hope if if i can do the because because right now what i've what i've done is is still it runs with it runs in in an apple II environment um my hope is that if i can polish that off and, and make it pretty and, and work the way I hope it does. And I could, I could do a CC 65 something on, on so that you could run this on your desktop and, and, and have it extract from your disc images rather than, cause right now it, it requires your floppy disks and that sort of thing. So it's still a bit cumbersome, but there's progress. And so I'm happy about that. That's very cool. Yeah. If you get that cracked uh, for pardon the choice of words, I bet you could, <laughs> Uh, use something, I bet you could do something in shell scripts through, you know, Apple Commander, because Apple oh, Commander yeah. will let you pull the files out, and then once they're out... Even better. Know, yeah, once they're out on your command line, then you can dissect them with, you know, some kind of other tools with DD or, or who knows, set or awk or who knows what. You can. I'm sure you can pick them apart with various shell tools then. Um, but uh, yeah, well, that's really cool, Mike. So let's um, let's talk a bit more about our sort of impressions of it. I think uh, I think Mike and I both said we'd forgotten how how good it actually is. Um, you know, the uh, uh, visually, I think it's really quite quite impressive. You know, it's all uh, kind of the black and white double high res mode. Uh, it looks fantastic in virtual two uh, monochrome mode, and I think on any monochrome monitor, it's going to look fantastic. Uh, originally, back in the day, I used it on my Laser 128, which has a switch on the top, which uh, will kill the uh, the color burst, and uh, so it has like a black and white mode, and uh, that made uh, Geos even better. I will say that on modern LCDs, uh, the uh, Night Owl uh, LCD that we're also fond of uh, struggles a little bit uh, with that black and white double high res mode. It's kind of right at the limit of you know of what those that that monitor wants to display. It's certainly usable. It works fine. Uh, you do get some kind of rolling artifacts in the background because the background is this very soft gray created by alternating black and white uh, double high res pixels, and uh, that's. Yeah, the LCD doesn't uh, love that, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, if you can sort of overlook the the sort of subtle rolling in the background behind your windows, uh, it's uh, it's really quite usable. <laughs> Why am I getting nauseated using Geos? <laughs> did Daddy... this is moving in the background? <laughs> no, I, um, I I did catch that. That and it, it's sort of a for me. I, I I sometimes I have trouble like staring at at CRT certain CRTs that are tuned to. Um, or just slightly off their like 60 hertz, um, um, I can sort of see the, the the gun a little bit, and it, it I have to look away every few minutes for a few minutes to to reset 
um, or I will end up sort of feeling sick afterwards. And, and I got a little bit of that with Geos. But uh, overall, I, I just, again, this is this was a nice reminder of what you could do with even an 8-bit Apple II. Um, I, you know, it, it, it feels a lot like what Apple works could have been on the Apple II had they put a graphical front end on it because it's an it's a nicely integrated package and you can copy you know text into into other programs and, and I like that it's that this the suites uh, the suites uh, or I'm sorry the the programs within the suites can easily share data which is was sort of one of Apple Works's big features. Uh, unfortunately, you know you do want to do this in you do want to use this in monochrome mode like. Like uh, Quinn said, because there's the because of the double high graphics, there's some ugly fringing that goes on there if you switch to color mode. But and that's unfortunate if you're in the paint or the I forget if it's paint or draw the draw program, um, and you want to do colors, uh, you you have to switch to color and sort of deal with that ugly text so that you can draw in color and then switch back to to read text. That's a little bit annoying. Um, but overall, yeah, what a great program. I, um, I and the other thing that that. Just, bugs me and this is less about the Apple II version specifically is that if you go over to one of these Commodore 64 Geos pages there's so much stuff so many add-ons and other programs that were written for it that just really make turn this thing into an, an incredible program on that platform and there's just none of that really that made its way over to the Apple II and it would be great to to have some of that available but you know I guess you take what you have. Yeah, the, the the Apple II version definitely didn't get quite the support that the Commodore one did. Uh, that said, I think the Apple II version is honestly much more imminently usable. Uh, I, uh, I had a Commodore yeah. 64 mm-hmm. friend back in the day, and we used to talk about Geos a lot because we both had it. And, you know, I had used it at his house, and uh, honestly, I found it awful uh, with the lower res screen and the joystick <laughs> controls. And I just, it was really, I thought, really clunky. But that said, yeah, they did have a lot more software. Now, uh, there is, I think, more uh, Geos software f- that came to the Apple II than I realized, uh, and that was one of my pleasant surprises in this adventure. The uh, you know the package I had was you know GeoPaint and uh, GeoWrite, but uh, and that also comes with GeoSpell, the spell checker, uh, and GeoDictionary, uh, the dictionary for the spell checker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it turns out there was also uh, GeoPublish uh, did actually come out for the Apple II, which I I didn't know. That was one of the best parts of the Commodore 64 version. That was the desktop publishing, you know, page layout kind of uh, section of Geos that lets you, you know, make newsletters with columns of text wrapping around graphics and all that kind of stuff. Really, really powerful stuff, really very Mac, you know, level stuff. And uh, uh, that, yeah, that I had no idea that had actually come out for uh, for the Apple II. Now the Geo, the only version of GeoPublish I could find was actually the version that came on three and a half inch discs. So I don't know if there was also a five and a quarter inch version of it, but um, that's included in the links uh, that we'll have in the show notes. Uh, the super, super install that I made of Geos does not include GeoPublish because GeoPublish is so big, it actually fills two three and a half inch discs by itself. So there's really no way to include that, but uh, it includes every other Geos application and still has room for plenty of your own documents. I, I wish there there are two features I guess that that I, I really wish had made it over to the Apple II from the Commodore One was uh, GeoTerm, uh, which was a terminal a modem terminal emulation mm. package that you could use to dial your your favorite BBSs without ever having to leave Geos um, and that didn't make it in and I guess uh, um, 
there was a Commodore, like a high-level programming language for Geos mm-hmm. that was available to the to the Commodore folks that had uh, appies and and things like that, um, and that was never available for the Apple II. So, um, yeah, bummer for us. <laughs> yeah, if you Google Geos information, you'll mostly find Commodore stuff because uh, yeah, the right. Apple II version was kind of the redheaded stepchild. Um, Interesting you, interesting you mentioned that programming language because uh, when, uh, I came across that as well. And uh, it seems like they had they were planning to release that for the Apple II or, or something because there's the documentation for that uh, API actually includes Apple II stuff in it. So uh, I'm not sure what the story is there, but uh, it's pretty interesting. Unless uh, our guests told us when we interviewed them. <laughs> yes. I mean, no, because they're here in the room <laughs> with us because... Because live show, something, something. Because we already interviewed them, not really. (laughs) Yes, that's the the anti-magic of podcasting. Right. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I wanted to circle back a little bit to the uh, the use of... uh, um, Well, before I do that, Mike, did you use it on uh, real hardware or in virtual too? Um, I had, uh, you're talking about yesterday, I used yeah. it mostly in, uh, mostly in virtual too. Okay. Yeah. If you'd used and, it on, uh, and then on Apple win on the Apple side or the, the windows side. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah. If you had used it on virtual too in, in 1988, I would have been really impressed. Um, <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> so, uh, so I took the higher road there and used it on real hardware, uh, because I, I wanted the full experience. <gasps> Yeah, so that gave me actually some. You just want to turn your nose up at me, I know. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 a, I'm apparently a real She's hardware a high snob and mighty now. And snooty. And yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I adore Virtual Two actually, but uh, I do almost <laughs> all my Apple Two stuff in it. But this time around, I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go for the full Monty here. So, uh, <laughs> but then yeah, I spent the whole whole day building a three and a half inch uh, install uh, that I could use, and then didn't end up doing much with it uh but uh so anyway yeah so circling back to what i was saying about the 2c plus actually being kind of the perfect geos platform so in addition to obviously having you know the mouse support uh and the other great thing about it is uh the of course accelerator now geos is really quite impressive at one megahertz uh i honestly i ran it a bit at both just to kind of get a sense of how much uh, better or worse it is and for most applications you don't notice a lot of difference with the four megahertz. Uh, it's it's so well written that it's surprisingly usable uh, just at one megahertz. Um, their their graphics routines must be just crazy good because <laughs> you know they're doing you know full screen scrolling in the documents and stuff that is really quite remarkable. Um, the one area that I did notice a difference was in GeoWrite with if you're do, using really big complex fonts uh like you know 48 point font with a you know an outline style or something and it's an intricate font at one megahertz you can actually see it you kind of have to wait for it to draw that line of text as you scroll uh so when it, you know when it comes on the screen the first time it has to render uh and then it scrolls just the pixels but uh whereas on the 2c plus it just kind of cruises right past that and kind of renders it uh, automatically so uh, that was pretty cool the other thing that makes a 2C plus great for GEOS is, you know, as any GSOS uh, user with five and a quarter inch drives knows the, you know, those old five and a quarter inch drives are not well suited to uh, GUIs because there's no way to detect if there's a disc in them. So, you know, the way they all solve that problem is by rattling the head around until it gets an error <laughs> to see if there's a disc in there Brandy or not. <laughs> yeah, and Geos suffers from that as well. You know, if you boot it with five and a quarter inch drives connected with no discs in them, uh, it'll take a while to scan drives and rattle the head around and figure out there's no disc in there. Um, 
you know, a workaround that a lot of us used. Like when I had my GS, I just kept a floppy disk in all all my five and a quarter inch drives, just like a empty Protoss disk, just so because it would find them quicker than how long it took to figure out there was no disk. Uh, with G, uh, with GIOS, however, on the 2C Plus, you know, the 2C Plus actually has disk 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 detection on its internal three and a half inch drive. So if you're using if you're running GIOS off of say a Unis disk or you know uh, any kind of compact flash solution then uh, it actually instantaneously knows there's no disk in that drive. You see the light flash once. And uh, so that's really cool. It doesn't slow down, you know, your, your operations. Otherwise, every time, you know, you open a file browsing dialog or anything like that, it has to scan all the drives to figure out which Ugh. disks you have available, which gets a little tedious. So that's pretty cool on the 2C Plus that it does that. Uh, now, an interesting side effect, I, I ran, uh, I initially installed GIOS from uh, my Unis disk connected to the smart port on the 2C and it's sort of disorienting using it that way because I guess I'd forgotten how useful it is to have the disk drive noises uh, to tell you when the computer is busy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, because GIOS does a lot of stuff on the fly with the disk drive uh, because, you know, memory is so tight with all, all that they're trying to do. They're constantly swapping things on and off the disk kind of in the background. Um, so using it off an SD drive, you just sort of, everything just goes dead sometimes for a few seconds <laughs> and then you glance at the display and you see the track numbers changing and it's like oh okay you know whereas running it off the three and a half inch disc uh the experience felt better because you just sort of your brain kicks in that oh when the disc drive's making noise i know it's doing stuff and then it doesn't feel like things are stuck does that make sense <laughs> like it doesn't it does, yeah. It, yeah it doesn't feel like anything has stalled because you're just used to you know disc drive noises mean i wait now <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and, and that's actually one of the, the things that I don't like about some some emulators. Uh, like, I, I, not I, I think um, you know, Virtual Two actually makes will make disc chunking noises, which is really handy. But not all the emulators will do that. And sometimes when you load up a disc image and it's just sitting there, you're like, is this thing loading? And and because uh, you know, I think like Apple Win has a little uh, little light indicators. You know, but you have to go looking for that uh, to 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 see when there's activity, and some of them don't even have that, so you don't even know if this disk is doing anything, or you know, if you've especially if you've pirated something, you know. And one of the things that would always happen on certain games when that you tried to pirate them when it booted is the disk would just spin infinitely with the Apple II at the top of the screen. Well, in an emulator, you don't know if that's okay. Is it frozen? Do I need to restart this process? What's going on here? So yeah. I, I totally totally identify with having been you know um, Pavlovian training going on there with disc <laughs> disc drive noises you know the the the, the, the drive chunks in my mouth waters that kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think you know people think of the disc drive noise noise emulation part of Virtual Two as just a a fun gimmick uh, like the you know the other noises that it makes, but it's really not. It's really a user interface uh, with the Apple II because mm, yep. yeah, so much software just relied on the fact that users knew if the drive was making noise, the software was busy. You know, nowadays we have, you know, spinny beach balls and things to indicate that software is busy, but that old software didn't have that. So like Geos will just sit there <laughs> on a blank screen for 10 seconds sometimes. And, you know, if you don't have the drive noises, you just wonder, is it is it dead? What uh, What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, uh, yeah, that was interesting. So that kind of actually leads into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is just kind of the overall architecture uh, of GIOS. I think um, it's really very, very elegant uh, and in many ways quite superior to a lot of its contemporaries, you know, uh, the early versions of macOS and GSOS uh, and those types of things. Uh, so the 
the operating system itself, it uses it uses Protoss uh, as kind of a block device, uh, possibly in a very similar way to uh, the way Martin Hay uses it in his uh, Mythos for League of Le- uh, for um, uh, uh, Lawless Legends. <laughs> Sorry, uh, League of Legends is in my head these days uh, <laughs> for uh, for Lawless Le- for Lawless Legends. Uh, so I think GS uses a kind of a similar way. Uh, so it is in a sense built on Protoss, but not really. And uh, but the kind of the structure of it is uh, very clean and simple. There's you know there's a, uh, a kernel file and all of your drivers and everything live in a system folder on the disk. And whatever is in your system folder will get loaded as far as drivers and uh, whatever applications you want uh, on that particular floppy uh, also go in the system folder. Each application is just a single file and it scans that system folder automatically and then all the applications become accessible in the menu bar at the top of the screen so it's really quite elegant and if you select a different disk it immediately knows you know what applications are on that disk based on what contents of that system folder and it does all this very quickly you don't necessarily feel that uh, scanning uh, or, or anything like that so uh, and this this structure you know at the same time being very simple it's very transparent so you open your system folder and you can see, oh, there's my mouse driver, there's my printer driver, there's my serial port. And so you can literally drag drivers in and out uh, and change your whole configuration. So it's a little bit like the Apple III in that regard in that you set up a disk, a particular boot disk, with a set of drivers that you want to use for that job. Uh, but the difference is it doesn't hide them all in some mysterious you know, format. The drivers are just sitting there. You can see them. So, uh, And then there's also a little wizard that lets you... Uh, Kind of, if you don't want to try and find the driver files and stuff yourself, you can run this little wizard that just um, asks you, "What kind of printer do you have? What kind of clock do you have?" You know, and uh, it just finds all the files for you and makes you a little boot disk. Uh, so yeah, it's. I was quite surprised how elegant it all is. And then, sort of related to that, is just how fast it boots. Honestly, you know, compared to GSOS or or, or macOS, it's uh, the difference is striking. I mean, it GSOS boots really quite quickly. You know, obviously slower than Protoss eight because it's loading a whole GUI, but uh, yeah, it's usable in in a couple of seconds. I mean, I spent half my childhood watching GSOS boot, so uh, you know, uh, kudos to to them for getting getting such an impressive boot time. Uh, what uh, what were your impressions of the sort of technical aspects of it, Mike? Uh, well, I like I said, I spent most of my time trying to pick apart the the file format, and I, I got to say the um, the compression scheme that they used which surprised me for how sophisticated it was. Uh, on the Apple II, they really are able to crunch those files down. Um, I don't have the tech notes in front of me, and I don't want to sound like I'm. I don't want to have to come back next month and say, "Oh, all those things I said they were wrong." <laughs> so, um, but but I was I was very impressed at, at how efficiently um, there, there's there seems to be this innate recognition of okay, this is an open sandbox, this Apple II, but it's very limited and. We need to to make this absolutely as as efficient as possible in every single in every single way, and they they managed to do that, and they managed to do that without making you feel like they cut corners when you are using it. Because sometimes you know, they you'll you'll have a, a program that's that's been streamlined, and it's streamlined because it's missing features or or it's buggy or it's, it has to slow down in certain places to make up for what they took out, and you never get that feeling the 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 veneer of the GUI itself. Uh, always felt like you were getting the a, a full featured maximum interface that that's not that that doesn't it doesn't feel like it suffers at all from from um, the um, streamlining and and the compression they did there and so I you know the, talking 
to and it's it's especially for me impressive because it was you know the the Apple II version, uh, as we heard in the the in the interview was was basically a port of the Commodore version and and sometimes also ported software it tends to be terrible you know because they'll only port they'll only change the stuff they absolutely have to to make it run and so you end up with this rickety like machine that feels like it it was ported and and you know games we talk about those all the time about how a game on one platform has been ported over to this other one and it's crap on the other one because they didn't actually do the work that they needed to to make it a good port they just made the code run and mm-hmm. and so uh kudos to the to to the our interviewee or interviewees um <laughs> uh on doing such a such an amazing job of 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 making this a native apple II piece of software even though it was a port from commodore yeah, this was clearly written from the ground up uh, to to be a GS product, but you know, with Apple II uh, in mind and with Apple II, you know, uh, knowledge up front. So yeah, it really is really really nicely written. And I think yeah, this is very astute what you said that uh, they definitely you know cut corners, but in areas that you don't necessarily notice unless you're really looking for them. And I, I did actually really look for them because I really wanted to know how does this compare to modern uh, GUIs, and I, I just came away so impressed with how close it was to, you know, my current uh, GUI environment. Uh, you know, there was just little yeah. things uh, like, yeah. you know, like GeoWrite has all these great font styles, you know, bold, italic, uh, outline and so on. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't uh, combine them. You know, you can't do bold and italic, you know, so little things like that that are missing. Um, or uh, Geo right. GeoWrite has no undo. Um, but you know, they were careful not to cut corners in places where it really, really mattered. So like GeoPaint does have an undo, uh, cause that's, you know, in a paint program, you really need that undo. That's really what makes, you know, computer paint programs good is the undo. So it has one. It's very, it, it's very primitive. It's only one level, uh, and it has a tendency to forget if you don't use it right away, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's there. So that it's, it gives you just enough to, to do what you need to do. I can just imagine like spending three hours on on some intricate intricate beautiful drawing and and you know oops got that line wrong gotta start over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, back uh, back in in the day, I I used to make drawings uh, blueprints, if you will, of spaceships. That was one of my uh, little uh, nice. junior high hobbies. And uh, gosh, That's cool. Gosh, I hope I can find those floppies someday. There my parents' basement. <laughs> uh, but one of the interesting things that Geos did really well was kind of it it understood the quirks of the Apple II and how to work around them. So one of the quirks of the Apple II, of course, is that the pixels aren't square. And, you know, being kind of, this was the era of desktop publishing being, you know, the thing, they built everything in with the understanding that you probably would want to print it. And, you know, compare that to um, mouse paint, you know, which uh, was more along the lines of, we assume you're going to build this, build images to look at on the screen. So the pixels you know, the, the the circle tool made circles that looked round on the screen and your document was the size of the screen. Uh, compared to, you know, GeoPaint where your document was the size of an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper and when you draw circles with the constrained circle tool or this constrained square tool to make sure they're square, they look uh, stretched on the screen and because and they, they're doing that because it's the correct number of pixels in both dimensions to be to come out square or round when printed. And that takes some getting used to, I think, but um, it's actually, I think, very, very clever and very kind of forward, forward thinking in that regard. Uh, so, of course, you can still draw, you know, unconstrained things if you want to look around on the screen. But, uh, yeah, it was sure. definitely all with uh, with printing uh, in mind. Uh, so, 
that was very cool. And, uh, you know, they, uh, uh, they had all the, it contains just the right amount of, I think, file management and so on. The, the file management is definitely more primitive than say GSOS or something like that. You, uh, you have to do, you have to jump through some hoops if you want to copy a file from one disc to another, some of that kind of thing, or moving a file from one folder to another, you know, you don't drag and drop so much as you kind of temporarily move things onto the desktop and back again. There's some little tricks you have to learn there. Uh, the link we include for the repository actually has the complete documentation uh, in it, and you may want to skim that a little bit if you're going to play with Geos. I did actually have to look some things up. Uh, one of those was, you know, I accidentally saved one of my documents in the system folder and I needed to drag it up one level uh, on the disk, and I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to do that. <laughs> Turns out what you have to do is uh, drag the file onto the desktop um, and then drag it back to uh, back onto the disk and that will move it up one folder level but uh, that was not obvious so you know little little tricks like that where they had to come up with workflows <laughs> that you might not expect to get around the limitations of the hardware you know they couldn't do animated dragging and dropping through folder trees you know the way you would on a modern you know Mac or something like that uh, they had to come up with uh, more, let's say, lightweight ways to do some of that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's some weird little quirks like that. But uh, overall, I think, uh, uh, you know, for the most part, I was able to do everything I wanted in GIOS without really looking at the manual. So that's pretty impressive for the time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's an important thing, um, especially when you're designing a, a GUI is, you know, the, the less time that your users have to spend looking stuff up in a manual or a help file, the more successful I think you've you've been at, at creating that GUI. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, they definitely, it gets a little strained in some places. I played with GeoPublish a little bit and honestly got nowhere with it. <laughs> that's that's clearly an RTFM situation. That software is much more complex. But, uh, you know, GeoWriter, GeoPaint, yeah, I mean, it's immediately obvious uh, what you need to do. Uh, you know, perhaps partly because we've all, you know, now grown up with GUIs and we understand the paradigm. But, um uh, yeah, I think even back then you could probably muddle your way through most tasks without uh, much difficulty. Yep. So uh, if you want to try uh, Geos out for yourself, uh, we've included in that link all, all of the disk images for the five and a quarter inch uh, version, as well as my super install. Uh, I uh, like I say I do recommend trying this uh, either in Virtual Two if you're going to boot it from the five and a quarters, or uh, if you have a two C plus, of course, my super disk image is awesome. If you you know, if you if you're gonna do it on real hardware, I do recommend multiple drives. Uh, you will spend a lot of time uh, swapping disks around. Otherwise, uh, at one point I copied a hundred k file from one three and a half inch disk to another. I was juggling some things trying to get my disk image going, and uh, I, I I was sad. Uh, <laughs> I spent spent the better part of ten minutes uh, swapping disks back and forth to copy that file because I only have one three and a half inch drive. So don't don't make that mistake. Um, but uh, yeah, so the disk images there, it's a, it comes on four disks. There's uh, each disk is double sided. So the disk images uh, from the repository, of course, aren't labeled. So, uh, and Geos asks you to insert disks with various names on them. So uh, I thought it would be helpful to just explain uh, what each disk actually is. Disk one is uh, the first, uh, disk one side one is your boot uh, or desktop disk. Uh, Geos refers to it both ways. Uh, disk one side two is uh, the demo disk, and it actually includes kind of little interactive uh, movies of future Geos products, which are really cool. 
Uh, there's three on there, and as far as I can tell, only one of them ever came out. Um, GeoPublish is on there. There's also demos for uh, GeoCalc uh, and GeoFile. And, you know, users, please write in and tell me if I'm mistaken here, but I could not find those. So uh, I looked everywhere and could not find either of those applications. They look pretty complete. Uh, they're obviously a, a spreadsheet and a database, respectively. But it does not appear that they ever came out. So uh, if that's uh, if I'm mistaken on that, please let me know. Uh, disk two, both sides are just drivers. Um, they're literally called drivers and more drivers. So if Gios asks for those disks, you know which what they're talking about. Disk three is side one is GeoWrite. Side two is GeoPaint and desk accessories. Uh, Gios has its own system of desk accessories similar to GSOS. So, you know, if you want to have a calculator or the obligatory sliding tile puzzle to play with, uh, those are all <laughs> uh, on the GeoPaint disk. Uh, Geos has a lot of, they do a lot of this where they just kind of shove things in wherever they had space. So right. uh, if you want to have some fun with GeoPaint, you know, one of the first things you do is you copy the GeoPaint disk and then delete all the desk accessories off of it so you have room for your document. <laughs> uh, if you have OneDrive, that is. Uh, let's see, disk four side one is GeoSpell and the laser writer support. So one of the amazing things about Geos is it had full support for laser writers. Uh, so if you wanted to do some serious desktop publishing, uh, you could. They had special fonts, uh, I guess, that were sort of postscripty kind of. Um, but yeah, it had a whole series of uh, dedicated uh, application, kind of mini and helper applications uh, specifically for page layout and printing in uh, on laser writers. Uh, yeah, so GeoSpell and the Laser Writer support uh, is on disk four, and the backside of disk four is the Geo Dictionary, which uh, is of course used with GeoSpell. And uh, GeoSpell I never used much uh, because it is because the dictionary is literally on a different side of the same disk. Uh, <laughs> unless you take the time to make a separate disk and copy the dictionary to it, you will spend a lot of time flipping that disk over <laughs> while, while spell checking your document. <laughs> so I don't necessarily recommend that. That seems like a bit of an oversight, uh, but it is it's kind of neat if you do go to the trouble of doing that. It's kind of neat. You can watch it uh, shoot back and forth between the drives while it uh, uh, spell checks your document. But of course, as you can imagine, the dictionary is huge, uh, so it fills an entire disk by itself. Um, but uh, it's pretty neat. You can The dictionary is both a data file and an application, so you can open it and actually um, add your own words and, and change words and so on. So that's kind of neat. Uh, but that's nice. Yeah, but that's it for the basic package. So... Um, Hopefully, uh, you know, you guys will give that a shot and uh, be as impressed with it as we were. Do you have any more closing thoughts, Mike, on that, or should we move on? Um, get Geos, play with it, love it. It's great. Ah, amen. I could not have, could not have said that better myself. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's get back into some news, shall we? It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. All right, Mike, I think this first item is yours. Uh, why don't you tell us about it? All right, Quinn, have you, uh, surely you've seen the Computer Chronicles? I have. I'm a big fan. Yeah, and that show um, by Stuart Chaffe, of course, uh, played a, a big part in a lot of early Apple II news type things for at least people like me. And I don't, I'm sure it wasn't broadcast in every market, but I know for a while it was on, was it on PBS? I don't know if it was or not, but uh, certainly on whatever public access educational like if the channel showed Sesame Street in the afternoon, it probably showed Computer Chronicles in the evening at some point. Um, and of course, one of the 
co-hosts of, of the Computer Chronicles for a while was Gary Kildall of uh, uh, Digital Research Incorporated, CPM fame, that sort of thing. And now there is a spoof of the Computer Chronicles called Computer Show. And um, so far there have only been two episodes of the show released. They're both available on YouTube and they're only 10 minutes long a piece. And, um, and the hook, I guess, um, if you want to call it that, is that so the hosts of the show, well, there's one and a half hosts, I guess, and I'll get to that in just a minute, uh, are in the 80s, okay? <laughs> but the guests that they have on are like Lumi.com, people like in the here and now. And so they're describing these things. Um, these, you know, like Lumi, I think is a, like a, a, a site where you can store and edit and print your pictures and stuff like that. And, but, and they're describing this to a 1983 Gary Kildall. And so they're like, generally we find it's easier to manipulate your photos when they're on the computer. And he's like, well, yes, I have my pictures of, I have my paintings sitting on top of my computer right now. <laughs> um, and, and watching him score but the, the the amazing thing is this the host is he's got killed all nailed he sort of looks like him but but the the mannerisms and the way he talks i mean you're like geez is that gary but he's also very full of himself and tends to cut people off you know they'll <laughs> try to explain these things oh i got it i got it and then just move on to the next segment um so they and i like the the first episode there's a, a he introduces a female co-host and she says her name and i think that's all she ever says on the show because it's all just killed off for the rest of it now each one of these is only 10 minutes long so um i, I don't think it's um you know, it, it's not going to take a whole lot of your day, and the, and they're hilarious. I, I think you should check them out. And and there's Apple II stuff all over them. I think the the company that produces them puts their logo in on an Apple II screen when it starts, and you can see one sitting in the background. So there's your Apple II connection. <laughs> yeah, this is just a great watch. Um, yeah, this thing is even if it didn't have an Apple II in it, I think we would have been forced to link to this because it's so funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they've got the production values nailed. I mean, it looks exactly like an 80s TV production, you know, with the, the yellow chunky subtitles and this sort of has that 80s color tone to it. Music. Yeah, and the, the synthy pop music and uh, the, you know, the super cut intro of people turning knobs and, you know, looking off into <laughs> space and terrible 3D uh cubes rotating and things it's just it, it's it's perfect they've absolutely nailed it so if you've yeah spent any time watching computer chronicles or uh the other one that i grew up with was uh, bits and bytes uh, with luba goy uh which may have been a canadian thing i'm not sure but it's also on youtube uh, but yeah they've just they've nailed the tone of these 80s computer shows perfectly so bravo What's next? Uh, let's see. So there's been talk uh, going around of a, a previously undiscovered Apple logo that has been found. And this is an interesting article. Um, I feel like it's, it has been reported perhaps a little bit more breathlessly than it deserves, but it's interesting. <laughs> uh, so this guy, I guess, went through some old uh, publicity photos and things of Apple, and he found different versions of the apple logo so the color striped one that we all know and love he found versions of it that were aligned differently the stripes are different and ones that had different colored stripes and i don't know what your impression of it mike was but mine was that some of his quote findings were legit like the different alignment and earlier versions of the color logo is definitely interesting uh, the different colored versions, I think there's a little bit of him maybe extrapolating too much from uh, very low-res fuzzy photos. Uh, what was your thought on this? 
Yeah, I think some of that might have just been, you know, the printing process that the die sub printing process that puts a color Apple logo on a piece of newsprint mm-hmm. or slick magazine paper is, is going to look different than than the spray paint um, process used to put a logo on a piece of plastic that goes onto your Apple II. So I don't know about the colors now. It's interesting that, okay, so back in 2009, I guess there was a, there was an interview with Rab, Rob Yanoff or Janoff. I'm not sure if you pronounce the J there. The guy who originally created the Apple, the color, the, the rainbow Apple logo, the one that came after Ron Wayne's intricate but really overwrought and kind of useless um, Newton Apple logo that appeared on the Apple One documentation. And in this interview, he talks about it's a little bit further down. He talks about how there's actually a second version of that logo that was created by. Do where did it go? By a company called Landor Associates, and he and in that interview, there's the picture of the way of the 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 logo that he designed, and then there's the picture of the of the Landor Associates logo as it, and it's the one that um, when you see the Apple computer and it's in that modern Tectura font, and the logo is you know to the left, and the little bite out of the apple aligns with the the curve in the A. That's the Landor Associates, and and those are the pictures that appear in this this other article um, that that we're talking about now. So I'm not sure that there are any discoveries at all here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wonder, but. Uh... Oh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's an interesting read. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, there's definitely. Uh, it's always fun to read about that kind of stuff. I'm not. I'm not slamming the guy. I just I don't know how much of this is is new research, or and, and it's not even that. I don't think he went and ripped anybody else off. He, this is obviously independent research, and so it's cool to see somebody digging around like that. I just don't know that there are any new conclusions to be had. Yeah, I think this is a case of uh, you know this guy doing some interesting digging for his own amusement. And then it got picked up and kind of overreported a little bit. Uh, other news outlets <laughs> always looking for interesting Apple angles, I think, decided, oh, this was previously undiscovered something, something, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> but, we talked about how... We talked about how, you know, when, when something appears on Mac rumors, it's going to be on Cult of Mac and Inside Apple and all these other blogs. They all tend to copy each other, and then, again, with the same breathless reporting, so... Yeah, so sometimes I think those sites just have RSS feeds running on each other and they just <laughs> cross post automatically and if you went to their offices there'd just be an empty room with a tumbleweed and one sad IT guy in the corner. That's right. <laughs> anyway, it uh, the article itself is is uh, a good read, I think. Uh, yeah. all right, so moving right along. Uh, so there's this, been this video series uh, on YouTube uh, called How Old School Graphics Worked, and they've been talking about all different 8-bits uh, and other machines, but uh, the latest uh, video has a section on the Apple II. And what's, I think, cool about this, and the reason it's worth talking about here, is it's a very approachable, very high-level uh, explanation of how Apple II high-res graphics work, the basic high-res. I think maybe for if there's, you know, non-programmers out there who have ever wondered, you know, why color fringe happens or why, you know, the six colors are the ones they are or why, you know, certain colors can, are never next to each other in Apple II artwork, those types of things. Uh, he, he does a really nice kind of short, clear, simple explanation of it with nice animations. So I think it's worth a watch. 
Yeah, it's and it's I think a neat series overall. If you're just interested in how those graphics, in general, used to work on the old eight bits. Part one is about Commodore and Nintendo, and part two is Atari and Apple, and it's mostly Atari. But you know, we uh, we've talked in the past about what a confusing vortex the Apple. Uh, graphics memory map can be and and you know it's jumps all over the place and and trying to figure that out can be confusing and and um and typically any article that tries to explain it like you said Quinn gets complicated very quickly uh which is great um if you're the programmer type but if you're if you're a user and you want to understand then this video is is wonderful so yeah i, I absolutely agree that this is uh, worth watching yeah, it's a real uh, real nice high-level view that doesn't uh, get too deep. And he also, I, I like that he calls out the fact that the reason, you know, he explains it all and he's like, well, that sounds really awful, doesn't it? <laughs> but here's the reasons because, you know, <laughs> this system was made in 1977 and, you know, the, its contemporaries that it so often gets compared to were, you know, five and some, you know, even six, seven, eight years later. So it's not really fair to compare Apple II high-res graphics to, you know, a Commodore 64 or something that came out five years later. Obviously, they're going to be better. You know, we learned a lot about how to do high-res graphics. You know, when the Apple II came out, of course, uh, the, the fact that it had any color at all, like showing a, any kind of color was amazing. So, uh, you know, it's, I think yeah. I, I have to appreciate it in its proper context. Well, uh, speaking of making high-res graphics do cool things, uh, David Schroeder has come out of the woodwork lately, and he's been writing for Gamma Sutra. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, he's got a blog over there, and uh, the most recent entries have been about his old Apple II computer games and how sort of a, a short high-level look at how he you know how he created Crisis Mountain and, and Dino Eggs and it's neat um the the articles aren't themselves aren't very long and they don't get too technically deep but he's held on to a lot of his notes and he scanned them in and you can you can look at you know the handwritten uh you know he's he's got the sheets of graph paper that I think we all had when we were trying to make our, our awesome game that, that, that origin was going to buy and publish <laughs> and pay us a million dollars for. And, and on it, you know, the, the, the lines that, that line up uh, the, the grid across the top and down the, the side for the, the horizontal and vertical. And, and, um, he scanned and posted a few of those. Um, and it's, it's, it's really cool to, cause sometimes, you know, it, as we do Apple, uh, open Apple, we interview some people who um, have a deep knowledge of the things that they've done, a deep memory, and they can still recall that and talk um, intelligently and and remember all the great details that, that make for that sort of great technical interview. And then we interview some people who don't always, can't always remember the specifics of, of the tech stuff. They might remember, you know, a, a cool encounter that they had with Waz and Jobs that nobody's heard of before. And and those interviews are great that way. But they can't always remember, you know, if you start talking to them about how their code worked, they're, they kind of fuzz out a little bit because that's all gone. Well, So when a guy like this holds on to all of his notes and is able to recall it and, and speak about it in, in, uh, clearly and concisely, um, it makes for great blog entries. And so you should definitely head over to Game... Gama Sutra, Gama Sutra, I don't know, and uh, and read those. For sure. I absolutely love it when these old game programmers kept their notes. Uh, you know, those scribbled uh, diagrams and, and graph paper, scraps of graph paper are just, just 
you know, historical gold. And I absolutely love it that uh, so much of that stuff is, is still around. So yeah, I think these articles are, yeah, they're, I almost wish they were longer because they really are a fun read. And uh, the comment threads are worth reading too, because people will ask, you know, uh, astute questions and, and David follows up on people's questions and so on. And he goes into just enough detail that, you, you know, um, it's not too technical if you're not a, a programmer, but uh, he talks about, you know, some of the timing things he did and some of the challenges with uh, organizing uh, Apple II memory and stuff. So excellent, excellent read if you're a programmer or not. Well, he's uh, he's also got a really great way of um, of writing that's that's humorous and um, and for for example, he's got a, a the blog entry for a Crisis Mountain is called "There's No Such Thing as a Random Number" and he's got uh, a few uh, rules that that he uh, realized as he was programming this. And the first is computer memory is brittle and fleeting. Without power, the work disappears. Gone. Saving one's work is not intuitive. Um, you know, when something goes wrong, reboot. Stuff like that. So uh, humorous and, and definitely uh, worth a, a read if you're into the history of those games. You know, if you're if you're someone like me who uh, enjoys reveling in, in what, what's wrong with the kids today, uh, the comment threads <laughs> are, are fun for that because there's uh, the, the Dino Eggs article has a, uh, a cool thread with one of the you know younger uh, programmers that Gamasutra has many of, who's trying to understand the timing uh, stuff that David talks about and how you know oh, well why didn't you just use you know a millisecond reference timer and <laughs> you see David sort of try to explain uh, that there was no real time clock in this computer so there there was no way to measure time uh, and plus everything is there's only a single code path you know there aren't multiple <laughs> things running at the same time and that it's it's interesting to me how alien these concepts are to uh, to younger programmers who, who've never used yeah. a true you know single pipeline single process machine with no clock in it <laughs> watching brain short out as they try to try to comprehend grok these these simple concepts that are so simple that like you know there must be more to this <laughs> yeah I, I think that's what trips them up is that they they don't understand how actually simple it is like it, it's just so much more primitive than they think it could possibly be and still run a video game <laughs> so i think that's what throws them is they don't they're not thinking small enough <laughs> kids these days yeah rar something something my lawn <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so moving right along, uh, let's talk some uh, let's talk some hardware stuff here, Mike. Uh, looks like we got uh, classic IDE cards coming again. Yeah, Technobytes, the uh, Brazilian company that made that uh, initial run of the classic IDE card, um, have announced that there are more cards available, and I'm on their webpage right now, and it looks like uh, as of now there are still cards available to purchase. Um, the uh, device sells for seventy dollars US. It'll take about 10 days for them. I don't know if they're building them as ordered, but it says 10 days to dispatch, which I assume means to to get in the mail to you. So order now, because I know that uh, the first batch, I think, was spoken for completely before before they were even available. And I don't know how many they have left or if this is a... Um, if they have, like, a limited amount, but you don't want to find out the hard way that they do. For sure, yeah. If you're looking for... Uh... You know, an alternative to uh, the CFFA, since they kind of aren't available right now. Um, this looks like a great option. Now, I think this is only, uh, I think the only connector on it is uh, 
an IDE. So if you want to do something like a CF card, you'll need to buy um, a converter for IDE to CF as well. Yeah, which uh, fortunately those are readily available for anyone who doesn't know. Compact Flash is basically, basically is IDE. It just has a different uh, connector on it. So you can buy these little little adapters that will let you plug a Compact Flash into any IDE device, including this one. Yep. Somebody in the comments section asks about future firmware releases. And, um, they want to use the classic IDE as a disk two emulator, and they, the the response from uh, Richo, uh, I assume, is one of the developers, says that we have plans for something just like that. Uh, solution in the meantime is using the classic IDE to implement a disk two emulator. Um, probably an update, a firmware update, isn't enough, but we're working on a solution. So big hugs. <laughs> awesome stuff. Uh, all right, so. You know, Mike, every so often you drop a news item in here that uh, makes my brain melt. And uh, this is one of those. It seems that VNC View GS has been updated. And my reaction to this was, wait, what? That's a thing? Uh, <laughs> apparently there's a VNC client for the 2GS. What's going on here? Right. So this this is <laughs> this is a VNC, as we said, this is a VNC client for your Apple 2GS, which will allow you to um, interact with your modern desktops if they're running a VNC server program. Uh, it's been updated to, I believe, version 1.0b and now includes the uh, source code. I don't remember if it did before, but uh, if you want to go in there and play around, you, uh, you now have the opportunity to, to do that. Now, I assume this runs uh, on like Marinetti over something like an Ethernet? Uh, right. You do need a, a TCP IP connection. Okay. That's uh, that's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and attendant hardware. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, wow. Just, yeah. It, it's one of those things where uh, people do these really modern things on these, these old machines. It sometimes just blows my mind. Uh, so, uh, I guess for anyone who doesn't know, a VNC is uh, kind of a standard for remote desktop use. So, uh, you know, it's popular with system administration and IT professionals who need to, you know, log into or need to see what's on the screen of someone else's computer remotely, you know, so you can kind of remotely uh, control other computers uh, that way. Um, so, Or if you're just lazy like me and don't want to get up get up and go upstairs when your favorite show is on to <laughs> do something on your Windows, uh, Macintosh or Windows computer. Yeah, Apple has sort of their own proprietary version of this called screen sharing, and uh, I use it at home here because I've got uh, an old Mac uh, running my uh, home, you know, media server. So, uh, and I also have a main machine that's built on uh, a Mac, so I use uh, VNC for that to sort of remotely uh, look at those machines and configure them, so I don't have to have keyboards and monitors hooked up to everything. Now it is a uh, it is a little bit limited um, as far as other VNC. Clients that you would get if you were working purely on modern platforms, you won't be able, unfortunately, to copy files from your modern platform over to your 2GS that way, but you can at least interact with and manipulate the desktop remotely. Somewhat limited. Oh, pff, I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's... Forget it. We're going to cut this piece then. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's very cool. Uh, okay, so moving right along. Uh, so this next item I put in here just because I, uh, I really enjoy it when the Atari podcasts talk about Apple II stuff on their shows. And uh, this one <laughs> this one particularly amused me because on Antic, the Atari 8-Bit podcast, uh, which is uh, awesome, an awesome, awesome show, by the way. You should all listen to it. Uh, they talk to, they do an interview with the fellow who designed the Pong chip. So uh, towards the end of the 70s, there was an explosion of home Pong machines. And what precipitated that was uh, this development of 
uh, creating an entire Pong game on a single chip. And then that made it really cheap to clone and make uh, Pong machines. So everybody from Sears to, you know, Fujimoto heavy industry had their own clone of the uh, of the Pong uh, home <laughs> console. Uh, so what's awesome about this interview, though, uh, is that he spends most of the time talking about how much he loved his Apple II. <laughs> so uh, it's worth listening to, I think, because he, he manages, he's a true fan, because he, he manages, no matter what question he's asked by the uh, intrepid Atari interviewers, he manages to uh, pull the conversation back to the Apple II and how great it was and how much it influenced everything that uh, that he did. <laughs> so if you want to uh, have a little uh, Atari uh, Schadenfreude, uh, I recommend listening to that interview. Cool. <laughs> so, Mike, uh, tell me about uh, Apple II Music. That's n- those aren't two words we often use together. Yeah. So, talk. So, if you really want an Apple II challenge, you know, go make some some music on your on your favorite eight bit Apple. Um, there is a, a an annual. I don't know if this is annual or not. I guess it would be an annual contest. It's called the uh, the One Bit Music Composition Contest. Let me, actually, let me pull that up here just to make sure I'm not lying. Um, this is the okay. <clears throat> this is called the uh, the One Bit Forum Music Compo 2015, uh, and there are a number of, of categories. There's the One Bit Classic category, which is music for your ZX Spectrum and 8 Bit Atari, for example. There's One Bit Alternative which is, uh, you know, the PC speakers, what they call the Apple Hooter, uh, the ZX81 calculators, Apogee, Channel F, that sort of thing. There's one bit uh, wild category for, for fake one-bit stuff, so stuff that you've actually made with your favorite VST or your DSSI sampling, that sort of thing, but it sounds like one-bit music. Uh, there's the one-bit 1K uh, category, which is a, a, so- a one-bit song that fits into one kilobyte, uh, and then there's the one-bit code section, which is um, a one-bit routine for a platform of your choice. And um, Daniel um, Crew, uh, who has been on the show before and is a regular at uh, Kansas Fest, and I believe he's also uh, partnered with uh, Melissa Barron, who's been on the show and is, uh, def- is a, an awesome Apple II artist in her own right. He entered a song called Moving Day in the Apple II section, and came in third overall. The results are up, and you can check out his entry and everybody else's over. Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes, and be sure to check out Crew's own um, Apple II music pages. They're pretty darn awesome. That is very cool. Uh, sort of related to that, when I was playing with Geos, I, uh, I took a brief uh, break to uh, play with um, uh, Michael Mahon's um, music software, you know, the DMS drummer and... Um, the other music sequencer tool that escapes me now. Uh, he showed them uh, a lot at Kansas Fest this year, uh, and they are uh, utterly fantastic. Uh, Sweet. <laughs> but I'm not a musician, so I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was uh, it was impressive, actually, <laughs> the music that uh, an Apple II can make when given the right software. Blink, 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 blink. <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, uh, let's see. Moving right along to some other hardware stuff. Uh, we talk a lot about Charles Mangan on the show because he does awesome stuff. And most recently, he's been doing some uh, Apple II-related uh, videos, and they're really nicely produced. Uh, we talked about one last uh, month about installing a headphone jack on your uh, on your Apple IIc uh, Plus, that is. So he's done a new one uh, about how to fix the keyboard on an Apple IIe. And, uh, you know, this is something that uh, you might do a Kansas Fest, or you might read an article about. But there's, uh, if you're not able to do either of those things, or uh, you know you're uh, scared to try this, uh, there's nothing quite like seeing a video of someone actually doing it, and uh, that's really quite 
illuminating. So he walks you through how to replace uh, broken keys and that sort of thing. Uh, it's a great watch. Yeah, he focuses spe uh, specifically on uh, broken key switches, um, the little post that holds the keys in place, and also uh, how to upgrade the power light, uh, the light bulb, power light bulb on, on your keyboard. I guess that those tend to burn out and they're kind of fragile, and now you can replace it with an LED, and he shows you how to do that. Yeah, that's a great idea, actually, because those bulbs also run quite warm, and uh, this is something that actually sort of unrelated but this is something that pinball people do a lot of because uh, you know an incandescent bulb sitting under plastic will dry out and crack the plastic over time and also sometimes yellow it so uh, you know if you've got a 2e with a nice looking power light and you want to keep it nice looking uh, putting an led under it is a terrific idea true all right so uh, we talked uh, just a minute ago about the ethernet 2 uh, it's now shipping is that right Yes, you can uh, buy your buy one for your your very own self at uh, a2retrosystems.com. It's uh, Glenn Jones's personal webpage. It's not really a business. It's just something he does on the side. So uh, he tends to only make these batches of Ethernet and Ethernet two cards infrequently, and when he does, they sell quickly. They're very popular items. It looks like for the first time. Um, the batches didn't sell out immediately uh, with the most recent one. You can go and buy your own for $70. Or if you were uh, a good enough photographer, you could have won one in the Retro Apple II Photo Contest. The winner has been announced. And that's, that's over on MacGUI, is that right? Yeah, it's on MacGUI. And we have a correction about oh, We'll do the correction right now. Last month we had said that the, the contest, there was a photo contest where you took the idea was that you took a picture of your Apple II equipment, um, but you made it look like the picture was taken back in the '80s. And we had said mistakenly that the uh, program or the the contest was sponsored by Call Apple, and in fact, it was uh, sponsored by David Finnegan and um, Matt Gooey City. Um, and the the winners have been announced. The first place winner was. Uh, a, a picture of a, a an Apple II Revision Zero and the monitor, and there's a little calculator, an you know, old HP calculator sitting on top of it. And, um, by Corey986, who I believe is the same Corey that does the uh, Apple I um, fix-ups and, and evaluations for Apple Apple I um, auctions for the big auction houses. He's, he's a big um, form user over on Apple Fritter if you want to interact with him. But he won first prize, so he won himself a free Ethernet 2 card. The second prize winner was of an Apple IIe playing Choplifter, and there's a bunch of software piled around it and a computist magazine and joystick and cool stuff like that. That was won by Mike Stevens, and he won free shipping on a card. So um, and there were several honorable mentions and you can see all the pictures of, uh, you can see the pictures of all the entries over at Macquay city. And we've got a link in the show notes for that. So congrats to, to the winners. And, uh, it's awesome. All the, the entries, they're great photos. Love them. For sure. Yeah. And if you have any interest at all in, uh, getting TCP IP on your Apple II, you should definitely go buy one of these cards. Glenn's a, a stand-up fellow. And, uh, I think that's a super reasonable price for, uh, for how much this card is doing. Fantastic. Indeed. All right, well, moving right along, uh, the French Touch has certainly been busy lately. They have been making 8-bit uh, Apple II demos, which is, you know, not something you ever, we ever saw a lot of, uh, you know, the Apple II not being exactly a multimedia powerhouse uh, like the GS was. <laughs> the uh, the demo scene never quite took off on the Apple II 8-bits, uh, but uh, so the French Touch has come up with a new demo called Plasmagoria, and uh, it's quite a nice uh, sort of series of animations what you would call from the demo scene they call these uh they call this a plasma effect it's kind of a cool um 
emergent behavior you can get by uh, doing some calculations on all of the pixels that are around a current pixel. Uh, it was often used, for example, for making flames. Uh, you can generate quite nice fire effects if you do it with certain colors. So it's kind of a it's a plasma-like effect on the Apple II using uh, both ASCII text and uh, some low-res graphics. And uh, the frame rate is fantastic, and that's really, really nicely done. Every time I see the, the, the name of this demo, I keep thinking of that, that old game Phantasmagoria. <laughs> yeah, that's... That, that, I suppose that's true. That's kind of similar. <laughs> so you're like, what? Nice observation, All right, Mike. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm All right. So, um, yeah, the, the French Touch, they've been at this for a while. Uh, recently, they did one called Unlimited Bobs. I don't know if we talked about that one. Uh, they've done one called Ibiza 2. I don't know what that means. Um, but if you head over to their... Um, to their webpage or to their YouTube page, you can see all of their videos. I think one that we mentioned recently was called Crazy Cycles. Does that sound familiar? Yes, that's right. Yep, Crazy Cycles and uh, Scroll, Scroll, Scroll were kind of related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were both playing with changing graphics modes, you know, mid-screen to combine, you know, text and, and low res and high res in ways that shouldn't be possible. <laughs> Very cool stuff. What's cool about these demos is that you know, while they might not be incredibly impressive compared to you know some of their sort of contemporaries on the Commodore or Atari 8 bits or the GS. Uh, you know, it, they are Butari. They are, I think, true to what it, demos are all about, which is to make take the hardware you have and do it something, make it do things that people sh would not expect are possible. And you know, they're definitely doing that. So I don't, I don't think it's right to compare these to other demos uh, on other platforms. I think it's about comparing, you know, a demo to your expectations of what the hardware is capable of. And in that regard, uh, the French Touch is just crushing it. Uh, they're doing things, uh, you know, that, that just make your mind hurt if you know anything about how Apple IIs work. So bravo, <laughs> uh, the French Touch. Well, uh, let's see. Next up here, we've got, I think, an item that probably the entire Apple II community is uh, on the edge of their seat waiting for. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is everyone's favorite Bulgarian Plamen's uh, VGA adapter for the 2C. And this is just, by all accounts, a fantastic device. Uh, and everyone's favorite retro writer, Javier Rivera, has done a bit of a hands-on review uh, over on uh, A2 Central. Uh, it's an excellent review. gives you an overview of the device. And, uh, you know, as though I needed any more motivation to buy this thing, uh, it just, <laughs> I, I can't, I, this thing can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so he uh, Javier does a good job with the write-up, like you mentioned. He talks about how, you know, they're, uh, the, the problem with the Apple IIc video out is that the signal from the video part isn't, isn't standard. Uh, and there haven't really been a lot of attempts up until recently to make a, a connector so that you could, you could, do video out from your 2C onto like say your television or something like that and and um, um, or or to your modern LCD and and have a good picture. So um, there's been they, they mentioned there's one way back from Video Seven, which was called the Video Enhancer, that would connect you to an RGB monitor, but you're still kind of out of luck with the LCDs and things like that. Um, and then more recently, Nishida Radio had had a, a 2C adapter and that was very popular and it worked really well. It didn't come with an enclosure, but it doesn't matter because he's out of the business. So if you wanted one now, you were out of luck. But fortunately, Plumman has stepped up and has created this thing. It looks like his Apple II A2 Heaven page that we talked about last month isn't up and running yet. So I don't, I don't know if you can buy these things just yet, but um, and I, I hope they're coming soon because I, I definitely want two or three of these. <laughs> 
yeah, they, uh, they're not quite available yet, but it's very, very, very soon. Uh, and I think what's really striking about Plowman's devices is that he's definitely bringing it to the next level. You know, he's got uh, nice enclosures. He's taken the time to make things small and compact and nice looking. You know, his uh, his SD Floppy 2 uh, SD card device is the same way. It's got a really nice uh, aluminum enclosure. And uh, this VGA device has a nice color matched, uh, you know, beige enclosure with a nice color logo on top. It's just, yeah, they're really nice looking devices. And uh, his prices are really reasonable. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of any reason not to buy 10 of these, honestly. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of uh, cool hardware devices coming along uh, the pipe here, we've got a Mockingboard clone available again. Is that right? Well, it was. It was. Yep. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is an example of <laughs> why you should, you know, as soon as you, as soon as you hear about one of these things, if you, if you're, if you're waiting, uh, you know, sort of the the disadvantages, I guess, of of small scale electronics production is that if it's a popular item, it's going to sell out quickly and may not show up again for quite some time. Uh, um, Ultimate Apple II, uh, which of course is uh, Henry Corbis and Anthony Martino, uh, um, had uh, a new run of the Mockingboard uh, V1A clone that they made. They originally released it a few years back. It sold out almost immediately. They had more of them available for $85 a piece. Those are sold out. Um, and normally I wouldn't bother to talk about something that you can't get except to that this is a good reminder that if you want one of these types of things you got you should probably jump on them as soon as you can now they do have a a handy feature uh, on their uh, uh, on their web store that uh, will allow you to be notified by email as soon as uh, a new uh, new product is available so definitely take advantage of that if if this is something that you were waiting on and missed out on yeah i think that that is a an excellent reminder that uh, if if these products come along, you know, like the Ethernet is available, the Ethernet 2 is available now, you know, if you want one, uh, go get it right now. <laughs> Pause the show and go get it because, uh, yes. yeah, these things, these homebrew projects, you know, nobody's making a ton of money doing this, if any, and, uh, you know, people only make them uh, as their real lives permit them to. So uh, you never know. They might go away forever tomorrow. Uh, so when they're when they're around, go buy them. Uh, run, run, don't walk. And you can't, you certainly can't uh, bank on there being another run at some point in the future. We've been lucky with the Ethernet card and with a few of these others that, you know, the, the manufacturers have been, in, um, have stuck around with the, um, uh, with the Apple II hobby and have eventually made more runs available. But, you know, Nishida Radio is out of business. Who knows if he's coming back? You may never be able to get his stuff again except for thousands of dollars on eBay. So... Uh, run, don't walk. Yeah, exactly. I definitely regret all the Nishida Radio things I didn't buy because I thought, mm, oh, I don't need too. it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't need it right now. I'll get it later. And, you know, I want to do some other stuff first. And now I can't get any of them. <laughs> I need to eat and pay my electricity. Uh... <laughs> uh, so uh, speaking of uh, hardware acquisitions, that, that was a terrible transition, but uh, I'll, I'll roll with it. Uh, regular right. Kansas Fest attendees know one of the very best parts of that uh, already amazing conference is the Garage Giveaway, where, you know, uh, on the first day, uh, we there's a big table set up and, and tons of hardware is piled on it from uh, various sources. And uh, then someone says go and everybody uh, charges in and takes whatever they want. Uh, and <laughs> fist fights yeah, and pulling and screaming. Yeah, and... I think last year seven people were killed. But, you know, it was all worth it uh, <laughs> for, for the Apple II, love of Apple IIs. The, uh, I got the, what I needed. 
Yeah, the, the only real rule is uh, nothing that you get, uh, it's all free, but nothing you get can show up on eBay because this is about uh, keeping the hardware in the community and getting it into the hands of people that will appreciate it and hopefully give something back to the community uh, with it. So much of, if not most of the stuff comes from uh, Sean Fahey's collection and he pays considerable money to store and transport that stuff every year to Kansas Fest. So uh, this year they started a GoFundMe campaign, which is a crowd uh, crowdfunding site, uh, to collect some money to kind of help offset those costs. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. They've achieved their goal of $3,500, which was modest, and uh, I'm glad that they achieved that. Um, so, but the, they're still taking donations. So if you want to uh, pitch in and give give something back to uh, the garage giveaway, uh, I strongly encourage you to do so. Yeah, so so for, for me anyway, uh, the garage giveaway itself is reason enough to go to Kansas Fest just mm-hmm. because of the cool. Like a couple of years ago, I got um, a, an Apple II Plus. It was one of those uh, that that the dealers way back when before Apple did the the you know test drive a Macintosh where you could rent a Mac for uh, a while. Uh, they did that with uh, Apple twos as well, the local dealers were allowed to rent or, you know, de- you could take home an Apple two for a while and demo it. And, um, I, I, at this, at one of these giveaways was this Apple two box with the, with the, the matching two plus still in it, um, all the documentation and everything. And, and the great thing about this is if you're at their Kansas fest, this is all free. Sean in the past has, has typically set up like a tip jar where you could, you could, you know, Give them a little thank you um, for for the effort, but you don't pay for for these items at all. And there's there's stuff that would go for hundreds of dollars on eBay. And um, so again, for me, worth it, worth the the trip to Kansas Fest alone just for this, let, let alone all the other great stuff. But I, I think what they found recently, and this is Sean, and I think um, James Littlejohn is also heavily involved. The, involved with this the guy who had the big green bus and now has the big green pickup of death um the um they found that they're getting less and less of these one and two off item donations and they're getting more of people like i have a garage full of apple twos and and software and books and can you come and bring a u-haul van and take this all away and that so you know they'll sean and and James and a couple of other people that have been helping out will road trip to wherever these are, load them up and take it all away and then offer it to Kansas Fest attendees. And like you said, it does cost quite a bit of money for, for gas and storage and organizing all of this and eating while you're on the road. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I can't think of a better, a better Apple II thing to donate to if you're looking to, you know, spend all the rest of your money after you've bought Plamen's amazing hardware. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's hard to overstate, uh, the, the value of this to the community. I mean, uh, my first Kansas fest, you know, I walked away from the garage giveaway with a basically mint, uh, 2C plus, uh, and nice. I mean, it, it, I, I was floored by that. Uh, you know, so it's, it's big stuff and, but also the little stuff. I mean, last year, uh, I, I really wanted, an original Apple II Plus uh, owner's manual because in the back of it, you know, it had a, uh, a fold out of the complete schematic of the machine. 
and uh, mine is in a garage, you know, in another country somewhere. And so I wanted that schematic to uh, to just pull it apart and stick it on my wall because uh, I thought it'd be fun to have the Apple II Plus schematic. And it's hanging behind me right now because you go there and there's a stack of Apple II Plus manuals. So A, I don't feel bad <laughs> about uh, ripping one apart because there's a hundred of them there. Uh, and, you know, B, I didn't have to go to another country and dig mine out of storage to do it. So just, you know, it's little stuff and big stuff. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's really rare stuff there. The, this year there was uh, uh, a Coco 3, which uh, I recently learned is a very uh, uncommon and very desirable cocoa. So it's not even not mm, even yep. just Apple stuff. Uh, and sometimes uh, you need an obscure cable. Someone was looking for a duo disc cable and they found one. So, you know, there's... Um, this is stuff that if you had to go and get it on eBay would yeah cost you a lot of money and a lot of time to, to search it out. So uh, these guys are doing an amazing service to the community. Um, so if, you, if you've if you been to Kansas Fest uh, or even are thinking about it, uh, I think you have to donate uh, to this GoFundMe. Uh, it's, there's, there's no better way to spend your money in the Apple II community, I think. Yep. And just to be clear, this isn't this isn't some you know uh, door fee or cover charge. You don't have to donate to to benefit from this. You just have to be at Kansas Fest, and um, so you know, obviously you know give what you can, give if you can, and don't feel bad if you can't. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so moving right along. Uh, so it looks like there's an Apple II connection to The Simpsons in Futurama. Tell us about that, Mike. Yeah, so this is another one of those Apple II celebrity things that, that I've been noticing a bit of here and there lately. This one's a little bit more uh, specific than than some of the others that I've talked about recently. And actually, this interview uh, is from 2008, so kind of old, but I had not seen it before. Um, a couple of years back, uh, David X. Cohen, I think his name is actually David S. Cohen, but there's another David S. Cohen already in the, the Writers Guild, so he had to pick a different name and he put X in the middle of it. Um, he was a, a writer producer for the Simpsons for many years and, and went on to be the ex executive producer and co-creator of Futurama. Uh, and a few years back, I think he put a call out to the Apple II community to help him rescue a game that he had written. And I don't know how I stumbled upon this recently, but there's actually an interview where uh, it, it's part of the it's on the Guardian uh, where they ask him what's your favorite piece of technology and he says the Apple II, and the questions are all about his love of the Apple II and you know I, I even learned that uh, something that I didn't know that he he cre he and his friends created a cutting edge graphics programming language to facilitate uh, development of video games for the Apple II. Hmm, that is really cool. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, let's see. Let's move along to uh, GSOS. So recently we talked about the new sort of community effort to update GSOS, and uh, 603 has recently been released, That we, as we've talked about, uh, but it looks like there might be a bug in it. Yeah. A friend of the show, John Brooks, um, actually posted about this uh, on as a, it's a follow-up to the uh, System 603 announcement thread in CompSys Apple II. He says that uh, he ran into a possible bug while running the install script for version uh, 6.0.3 and the caused the install to fail halfway through and leaving the boot disk in, in an incomplete state. Uh, the problem, as he describes it, was that the root directory filled up partway through the install, which caused the installer to abort before completion. Uh, the installer copied a what's new file into into root, which took the last unused directory entry. Uh, when the installer went to copy ProDOS or something important, the directory was full and uh, and aborted the install midway through. 
he does have a workaround. Uh, so if you encounter this problem, the workaround is that you boot off of a, a floppy and then consolidate all of the files at the root uh, into subdirectories to make room for new files that the installer will be adding. Cool. All right. Well, we, thanks for passing that along. If anyone's trying to use 603, they might encounter that. All right. Well, I think that's it for news. So we've got one quick piece of woos to talk about. Woos. We like was, and we know you do too. It's was news. It's woos. Was is going to be uh, in Kansas, it looks like. Not Kansas Fest, but Kansas at least. And you can get tickets to see him. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, you could get tickets. I don't, I don't know if they're still available. The, the website doesn't say. But Waz is going to be appearing at the, uh, the Lead Center at KU uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, which is just down the road from uh, Kansas Fest itself. And in fact, when Waz was out uh, at Kansas Fest in 2013, he and his wife stayed there because I think she is family in that area. Uh, tickets are free to go see him. He will be there uh, at 2 p.m. November 20th, again, at the Lead Center. There's a $5 service fee. Um, and I, I imagine by now, that was that was um, a couple of weeks ago, that they're, if they're not already completely out, then they're close. But you can uh, get your ticket now by going to lead, that's L-E, ied.ku.edu or you can call them at 785-864-2787 if you're in the area their box office is open from 11 a.m to 6 p.m and i always you know take every take every opportunity that you can to see was speak he's he's great the stories are wonderful he's a lot of fun um and the best part about this is that a lot of like i know he's appearing later on um in the year, I think maybe in January, January actually of 2016, and tickets to see him at that presentation are $90. So if you can see him for free, awesome, you should do it. Yeah, and if you get the chance, you know, he's not getting any younger, and as he gets older, he'll probably start spending more and more time in Australia as his new home. So uh, he's probably going to be less available for things like this. Uh, so see him while you can. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're going to just do a quick uh, tech segment next. Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. Okay, so normally, uh, obviously, Quinn introduces the segments and things like that. But today I get to because <laughs> this is something that she did, and it's totally awesome. Quinn, talk about what you did to your poor Apple IIc+. Uh, so, yeah, this was a fun little uh, odyssey. I think, uh, as many of us know, the uh, the Apple IIc+, for some strange reason, has a different beep. Uh, you know, the, every Apple II model... Every 8-bit Apple II model, at least, yeah, has the exact same characteristic uh, 1 kilohertz tone. And in fact, if you look in the source code for that, uh, for the Apple II ROMs, uh, the comment on the beep says, make a glorious sound. So clearly, the <laughs> clearly Waz felt this was a, a glorious noise, and I think we all agree. But for some reason, in the Apple IIc+, uh, it makes a lower-pitched sort of blonk noise and not the proper... Uh, sprightly beep that we all know and love and this has been driving me crazy and i decided to sit down and fix it so uh, i will spare you i will spare you the gory details because it was quite a long process but i will link to a uh, series of blog posts that i made on this topic 
And uh, the, but the short version of it is that uh, I, I built a ROM uh, burning and dumping tool, and I dumped the two C plus ROM, and oh and then I traced the code. I disassembled it and then traced the code. And what I found was that the beep code is actually the same on the two C and the two C plus. Of course, the two C has the correct beep. Uh, what's different is the there's a delay routine in the ROM that is shared by many systems, it's kind of the official delay routine. And what they did is they, they rewrote that in the 2C Plus because it's trying to be consistent regardless of the clock speed of the machine. And, you know, because of course the 2C Plus can run at 4 megahertz as well as 1. And they use this trick where they force the machine down to one megahertz during this delay loop so that they can count cycles and have it come out roughly the same. Uh, they do this by actually pinging the printer port of all things. Uh, when you do that, the accelerator forces itself down to one megahertz uh, so that the serial ports will work. So they, in this delay loop, they, they ping the, the printer port and the, just the way the code is written, uh, the cycle counts end up being different. It has to do a lot more setup uh, and so on than the 2C version does. And this delay routine is also lives in a different ROM bank. So the 2C Plus has two ROM banks. Uh, there's 32K of ROM in it, but it still lives in 16K of address space. So they actually page flip back and forth uh, while executing ROM code in the 2C Plus. And for some reason, they added like 12K of self-diagnostics. It's quite ridiculous. Uh, there's a lot of code in there that I don't think is necessary. But uh, so one of the things they did is they moved this new, uh, the ROM wait routine into the other bank. And so that means they have to switch back and forth uh, for that as well. So there's all this extra setup involving the printer port and the bank switching and stuff. And the code ends up being quite a bit longer and quite a bit more complex. And the cycle count of it is quite different than the 2C version. So it tries to, over time, it sort of averages out to be about the same so that the, you know, Apple 2C Plus is still compatible with everything but it's just different enough that it makes the beep sound different. So uh, after much experimentation, I ended up uh, just writing uh, a new copy of the beep routine with its own little delay that behaves exactly the same as the old one did, and I put it in a new section of ROM, and I jump over to that. Uh, so I burn new ROMs with that, and uh, it works great. So uh, I hope to possibly make uh, this available in some way. It might, it's probably, there's some legal issues here, uh, so, uh, you know, the, the 2C plus ROM code is still owned by Apple, so I can't distribute it, but, you know, there might be something I can do along the lines of, you know, bring your 2C plus to Kansas Fest and I can, you know, make you a new version of it or something like that. So we'll, we'll we can figure that out. I might be able to do some sort of a patch if you have your own, if you have your ability to burn your own ROMs or something. Uh, but anyway, so that's the story on that. And uh, I'll link to videos of all this and, and all of the source code and everything if you want to see how this was done uh, and maybe even do it yourself. I, I can't believe how wonderfully geeky that is, that, that you would spend that much time and effort to fix what basically amounts to a quarter of a second of audio. <laughs> Yeah, it was <laughs> it was a tremendous amount of effort, actually. Uh, yeah, several uh, several weeks of effort to to do that. And uh, <laughs> if I had known how difficult that was actually going to be, I I might not have done it. But uh, I'm certainly glad I did because it gives me a little smile every time I turn on my two C plus now and it makes the right noise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is just so cool. I just I'm smiling thinking about it. It's so great. <laughs> uh, fun stuff. Uh, all right, so uh, I think the last thing we're going to do here on this show is a few corrections from previous episodes, which sadly is becoming a regular segment for us. Why, why don't you start? <laughs> it's the same people that we keep offending. Yeah, we're we're really <laughs> sorry, folks. We are trying. <laughs> uh, start start us off, Mike. Um, 
All right. So uh, Antoine, of, of course, of Brutal Deluxe, uh, wrote in and remind us, reminded us that there's actually a, a third Olivier. There's uh, Olivier Gogel, who um, talking about something that Olivier Guinard, who lives in Seattle, something he did. Uh, but we attributed that to uh, Olivier uh, Gogel. And then we said Olivier Gogel was part of Brutal Deluxe, but he's not. That's actually Olivier Zordani. So we apologize to Brutal Deluxe, Antoine, and the Olivier's. <laughs> yeah, we, we pretty much choked that in every possible way. <laughs> uh, and uh, related to that, we also, uh, the other the other folks we keep offending uh, are <laughs> Antoine uh, Vigneault <laughs> uh, and uh, Peter Ferry. Um, we had recently mixed up the attribution of the effort to crack Rastan uh, a couple of months ago. Well, we did it again last month. Uh, we falsely <laughs> attributed the discovery of the secret <laughs> ending in Lady Tut to uh, Antoine, and that was also Peter Ferry. So uh, again, uh, once again, Peter, we apologize for that. Uh, Peter has actually been uh, doing a little bit of sort of 4 a.m. style uh, stuff. He's been cracking software uh, and disassembling it and so on, uh, but, w- but without attributing it with any kind of crack screen, uh, which is a really valuable uh, service uh, to be doing. And uh, so he's, he's doing a lot of thankless work and not getting any credit for it. So uh, thank you for, for all of your efforts, Peter. And he also answered some of the questions we had about that secret Lady Tut ending. We were you know mystified as to why uh, it had never been found and so on. So uh, what Peter says is uh, the previous cracked versions missed it probably because the crackers never actually finished the game. Uh, You know, he says that level four actually looks like level one. So they probably assumed it was looping and thought that was the whole game. And so their work was done. Uh, and he says that the other reason they probably didn't find it is it is uh, it's actually encrypted as well. So uh, those are the two reasons why the cracked versions probably never had it. And because all of us, let's be honest, played the cracked version, uh, none of us knew it was there. <laughs> uh, yeah, hence the uh, uh, hence the undiscoveredness of that ending. So thank you, Peter, for clarifying that and uh, correcting our errors. We will be firing our research department once again. All right, and finally today we have uh, a correction from Charles Mangan. He wrote in and said, Sorry to add another item to your segment of corrections and clarifications. I think that was a little bit of a backhanded compliment. (laughs) Um, But you jumped the gun a bit on some of my new offerings at Retro Connector. I'm still working on a few kinks in the conversion kit for the uh, M0100 to USB mouse, so that's not available yet. Not to go into too much detail, but this is my first project to require both PCB layout and 3D printing and adjustments to one part require changes to the other. That makes sense. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, to c- increase confusion, I'm also holding off with the other adapters to connect a USB mouse to a 2C or 2E mouse card and to connect a functioning M0100 to USB until I have all of them ready. The good news is I'll have them all ready by the time your next podcast comes out. Um, and then he takes a moment to, uh, to blackmail us. He says that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you can rely on my shameless self-promotion to spam the community's Facebook and Usenet forums when they're available, unless you want to have me on the next episode to hawk my wares. <laughs> so uh, I think we might have to make that happen. Not this time, obviously, but certainly coming up soon. For sure. Yeah, Charles is doing great stuff for the Appleton community, so we're happy to promote that. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of Open Apple. We hope that people appreciated our efforts to uh, clean up the format a little bit, and we will continue to work on that. Uh, and uh, I guess until uh, next month, thanks to everybody for listening. 
And thanks to our guest or guests uh, that joined us for the uh, GEOS interview. We uh, appreciate your time. Definitely some great information there. And again, we all love that uh, application. And if you haven't checked it out, you should. Um, and you can enjoy it in the meantime while you listen to the podcast. And we'll see you next month. Bye, everyone. Today on Computer Show, we talk about computer communities. I'm Gary Fabert, and I'm joined by Angela Dancy. She's president of the Stanford Computer Club. Now, Angela, why would you join a computer club? Well, Gary, a computer club is where students go to connect with students who share their interest in the world of computers and to gain some valuable hands-on experience with the latest technologies. Fascinating. I imagine that's also a great place to meet people. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, a lot of students go there and they're from all different backgrounds, but they connect with people who share their enthusiasm. This is fascinating. It's definitely a community I would like to be a part of. Now, I believe that I have Thursday afternoons free. What time do you mean on Thursdays? Uh, oh, no, no, you, you can't join the club. It's, it's for students. Good, 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 okay. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. I hope someday I get a tech support call from an aircraft carrier.